The following podcast is brought to you by cdkoffers.com. Use offer code DIESHRING for 3% off everything on the website and Broken Silicon for 25% off all Windows codes. All right, on with the show. Okay, and welcome to Broken Silicon, a gaming hardware podcast. I am your host, Tom, and as always, I will let my today very patient guest introduce himself. Uh, hi, I'm Brian Heemskirk. I'm the lead artist at Massive Damage Games. I'm in charge of uh, most of the art and um, art direction there, along with another artist that I work with. Uh, basically, yeah, I'm a working on indie games and video games for the last 10 years. The only thing I'm going to say is, fill people in on why I called you patient. We're starting <laughs> quite a bit late because, well, f- well, there was the time zone confusion at first, but then also we're, we're actually recording on the same day I put out the uh, AMD and Intel's fight for unprecedented leadership. I mean, it, it's, it's a long one, and I just... I've got a lot going on this weekend. I just wanted it all to get done on Friday. So I do apologize. And and I extra apologize because unlike half of the guests, I actually care about you. I'm, j- I'm just kidding to those other guests. Um, I, but I was really looking for someone who had, I don't know, a combination of both art and programming and kind of uh, just some of the behind the scenes knowledge on architectures that go in that are programmed on for games development at a real game studio. You know, you don't I don't believe you work for a triple A game studio, but you work for one that's been quite successful and people will know you from your Lisa Sue pixel art. In fact, I would argue or guess that most of the people listening have seen that Lisa Sue pixel art. I go on like like just forum threads looking at gpu stuff and it will pop in from time to time so i'm like i haven't been able to escape it so i i doubt most tech enthusiasts would be able to um yeah i mean in regards to that i i've been told i'm quite unusual in regards to because um, I'm, I'm an artist primarily um but i'm so fascinated with tech that i talk deep in tech with a lot of programmers that i've worked with and i've worked at a few game studios are our game studio, some massive damage. Um, I mean, it, it's probably in the top five to ten percent of um, indie game studios in uh, sales and success. Like, we have two big games, Halcyon Six and Star Renegades, and um, both of them, you know, have mostly positive reviews on Steam. Over a thousand reviews on both. Um, well, Halcyon Six is split into two, so it doesn't look like that, but there is. And they've like both of the games have sold over a hundred thousand, two hundred thousand copies. So. So anyways, yeah, I, our games are PC first primarily, but you can get Star Renegades on all of the consoles as well. Well, and I mean, I guess let me ask this too. What what made you reach out, you know, to come on the podcast? Like, I'm actually curious. I, I, I always am when the person reaches out to me and not the other way around. What made you, I wonder if you remember Discover Moore's Law is Dead. Well, I, I don't know. I've watched Moore's Law is Dead for like years so I, I don't know when you got recommended to me by the YouTube algorithm, but I watch, <laughs> like, I work all day. Like, I primarily watch tech stuff on YouTube. 
So it's like, I watch most of the major players, but I, I prefer probably the smaller ones that have more unique content or maybe a little bit more links mm. and stuff. And then occasional tech breakdowns. Like I love when Gamers Nexus has David Cantor on, which is an unusual thing because it's only happened like three times or two times, but some of the most fascinating conversations that they have. And for me, I'm always just drawn into like what what how things work like i'm obsessed with how things work because i've loved games my whole life and i'm always wondering like how games are going to be made better so i reached out to you specifically because your podcast is really first of all you do a lot more of the kind of talks that i was hoping for because what i've been hoping for in the tech youtube space is uh more just talks between like game developers artists programmers hardware manufacturers like i feel like that conversation is all hidden and we hear like peaks of it behind the scenes, but we don't hear any of it directly. And it's all fascinating how this stuff is made. So for me, at least. So that's, that's what specifically, if you don't mind me asking, how old are you? Oh, how old do you think I am? Oh, I don't know. I, you, you look like a pretty charming, good looking young man. I'm going to guess, but I think you have a family. I'm going to guess 32. I'm 35. Uh, I went to art school. I graduated and mid twenties. And then maybe I've been working in the industry for like 10 years. So. Right. So you're, you're a little older than me, but I, I'm kind of curious how you got into not just gaming, um, of course, but like the behind the scenes of hardware. Cause I just remember, honestly, I think the beginning kind of was just trying to make an informed decision all the way back on, I think the 360 Wii and PlayStation three, like there was so much technical debate around that. And I just, frankly, I remember just so many fanboys in the cafeteria arguing about why their console was better. And then I just actually started looking it up and being like, yeah, these, no one knows what they're talking about. Yeah, I was the exact same all the way back to like the SNES and the, the, the yeah. like Genesis and, and stuff like that. Like for the, I mean, we can get into the specifics. That was a big one in terms of fanboy arguments, I believe. Kind of interesting. You're talking 360 PS3. We can chat about that for a little bit because the PS3 had a worse GPU and it had a backward mm -hmm. CPU, and the 360 had a better GPU. It had a unified pool of RAM, and it had unified shaders, which allowed game developers for the first time to vary their workloads between pixel shaders and um, like any other shader operations that they wanted to do. So whereas on the PS3, you had a specific set of vertex shaders, and you had a specific set of pixel shaders. So you always, like if your scene came in, you'd have to always manage your scene, right? Because if the more vertex shaders came onto the scene all of a sudden and you didn't have them to spare, you can't just change your pixel shaders to vertex shaders. Where on the 360 with the unified shaders, they could do all of that. So I was fascinated during that area, era because I was working at a game store at the time and in art school. Mm -hmm. And I was like, why does Soul Calibur look so much better on Xbox 360 than it does on PS3? And there's a couple things. Like it had the, the 10 megs of ED RAM that let mm -hmm. it basically get four times anti-aliasing for free if they chose to use it for that. So in the early games, a lot of times you'd get a higher resolution and anti-aliasing for XMAA before they started doing deferred rendering. That's a different thing. So what I find so fascinating about the hardware comparisons from that generation specifically is it just kind of seems like it was so asymmetrical, the comparisons, because it's like, so the 360 comes out first, it's certainly easier to program for, certainly better balance, probably, wait, for sure better thought out in terms of pure gaming. 
But then it didn't always have a hard drive and it used DVDs and it didn't even have HDMI at first. So I remember, yes, if you had the right components or TV, it looked better. But I remember the PS3 for a lot of people, they would just go, oh, this looks better on my flat screen because the the, the other one just didn't even have HDMI. But the PS3 didn't come with an HDMI, to be fair. Be but set up too, because I mean, components susceptible to interference, right? So if they mm-hmm. have just noisiness in their setup, then yes, with some of those crazy old cables, right? And so that was such a bizarre system where it's like, oh, God, I I, I remember so much too, like. It'd be like, oh, well, the PS3 loads this game faster. And it's like, well, yeah, because it has a hard drive. So it's using a hard drive. But then also now you need to install the game for 10 minutes when you put it in. Well, there was the, yeah, the difference to PS3 too is the Blu-ray drive. I think it was only a two times Blu-ray drive versus a 16 mm. times DVD-ROM in the, P- in the Xbox. Oh. So what ended up happening is I think it was a three times discrete imp- performance increase on the 360 mm. versus the PS3 just because it was a much more mature version of the technology. So your initial, if, if it was streaming, that was an issue on PS3. And obviously the two RAM pools was an issue with data streaming on PS3. Um, but I, it was an interesting era. And it's an interesting era because they made games backwards for PS3. Like everything that they did for PS3, they will never do again. Because at the time, right, you had, you had PS3, which was GPU weaker than 360, but CPU strong but strange, right? If you did really, really... Uh, proper in-order execution that isn't going to cause any issues with your code. Mm-hmm. You had to have your code so streamlined that it wouldn't cause issues along. But what ended up happening on the PS3 is like, with, if you look at on Naughty Dog's work on it, it's an, it's it's unbelievable. They, it's a, yeah. they were taking everything they could away from the GPU, which is the opposite of what we do now. It's like, mm-hmm. we put everything we can onto the GPU, and if we have CPU cycles that are like for hammering the CPU too hard, we'll try to find a way to, to do that on the GPU somehow. But in on the PS3, is the exact opposite. You had so much CPU, and the GPU was kind of weak. So they were taking graphics functions away from the GPU and trying to do them on the CPU. The PS3, to my understanding, was originally designed without even a graphics card, and it was supposed to come out like two or three years, but the cell was way delayed back, and then they were like, well, this will be way too weak. So, uh, you know, it didn't, or at least, at the very least, it... The cell kind of is organized like a really older, weaker GPU in a way. And so it's not surprising they used it for that. That's my understanding. You're making faces, so I'm not an expert. You tell me where I'm wrong. No, no, I'm just, you're not wrong. You're just in Okay, okay. just me thinking. Um, (laughs) When you say that it's a weaker GPU, it's like, well, I feel like they were trying to do the emotion engine again, right? Just the the PS2, which was (laughs) like missing a whole bunch of GPU functions that you would typically have, but it had like a crazy fill rate. So it's like in Metal Gear Solid 2, you have much crazier particles than you do in the Xbox mm-hmm. version just because the fill rate was so crazy on it. And I think they fell in love with that. Yeah, the emotion engine on the PS2 is wild. Like if you actually look into what it's capable of, but then it just, <laughs> like in terms of like actual GPU power, it's like almost nothing, but it can do like specific things at once really well. Yeah. yeah. If you look at like Konami's games on it, like Silent Hill and Metal Gear and Zone of the Enders 2, the second runner, all of those were doing crazy things with fill rate. And I think that Sony was trying to continue that onto the PS3, which was odd. And like the PS3 cell is kind of a floating point monster. So there should be some kind of graphics stuff it should be able to do. Because I mean, graphics is mostly floating point. My understanding is by the end of the generation, they were using the cell CPU for some forms of anti-aliasing. I don't remember. I think there was some FXAA that was done on it and other stuff like that. Well, this is like kind of 
something. I mean, I I was I was hoping to get into this kind of in a different way, but this is fine. Because um, there's usually a mid generation shift caused by mm-hmm. something or another. Yes. Right. So you end up with a mid generation shift based on hardware available, and so like the PS3 mid generation shift was deferred rendering. I think one of the mm-hmm. first games that did it properly was Uncharted Two. And what deferred rendering, I don't know if anyone knows, but you, you change where in the pipeline your rendering mm-hmm. happens. And the advantage of it is you can do tons of lights. So your light sources goes yeah. dramatically, but the down... I believe Killzone 2 may have been actually the first it one. It might have been. I don't know. But I, I know it was like Sony internals were really pushing the envelope on that. I, I don't want to... Sp- to say just sure. memory which one officially does something first go easy on us in the comments yeah, guys. yeah yeah we're just we're talking offhand i don't know anything i just had a lot of conversations <laughs> and i have i have inklings but so deferred rendering changed the game though because what it did is it allowed way more light sources and in way better graphics but it it made msaa useless because msaa mm, would happen mm-hmm. earlier in the pipeline and because of that you would end up having all of your edges aliased anyways because your lighting would happen in a pass afterwards that's what I think. This is just from my understanding from talking to programmers and stuff. So just, I'm sure there's some program out there that could be like, it's slightly different. I'll be like, oh, I'm wrong. But um, despite that, they, they couldn't use anti-aliasing the way that they used to. So then they started coming up with FXAA and things like that. So it became necessary to use mm-hmm. CPU-based edge smoothing because of changing the, the rendering pipeline, from what I understand. Yeah. Well, and one thing I would say, kind of just to close out that conversation a little bit is, I think when people argue nowadays sometimes, for fun, I would assume, about that generation, which one was better or whatever, I think I think what I would just advise everyone is don't forget how different the consoles were at the end of the generation compared to the beginning. You know, at the beginning of the generation, the 360s had these just massive failure rates, and half of them didn't have hard drives. By the end, they were reliable. They came with an HDMI out. The P- I mean, I think they both came with hard drives that were wildly larger than the beginning, too. Yeah, you can't even compare the end consoles to the beginning ones, in my opinion. I mean, heck, the PS3 dropped backwards compatibility because they had to like literally put a PS2 in it. <laughs> they put a PS2 in it, and then they put half a PS2 in it, and then yeah. they were like, oh, let's just cut the whole thing out entirely. But I mean, it's fascinating because it's like, I always hear those conversations from other people and I'm like, you're kind of wrong. They're like, oh, the PS3 is more powerful. I'm like, in ways and not in others, right? It's like, that was actually an interest. I think the interesting generations are almost always the ones where they're they're kind of equal in different ways. And you can kind of see that. So now we probed into a little bit kind of where your interests came from. And I thought it would probably be a similar thing. Usually it's just those initial debates. But what... It says on your LinkedIn, you went to, and I quote, high school. And then after that, I mean, what? what uh... I went to Sheridan, uh, which is Sh- an art school in uh, Oakville, Ontario. And okay. Four year Bachelor of Illustration from there. And then I went to Lakehead University afterwards and actually got a Bachelor of Education. So I'm qualified to teach as well, but I've never really used that one. I teach college, I teach two art courses uh, at a game arts in college. But, oh. Uh, that's just an extra thing I do on top of everything else. So then, yeah, I mean, I think we're the way you really wanted to get into talking about that prior console and you have a teach and you do some teaching like you when you I'm guessing you're a type of person when you see something that's wrong, you really do want people to know <laughs> like the truth, though, and you want to know it for yourself. Right. It, it probably bugs you a lot when you see some of that stuff then, because I mean, why else would you be a teacher if you know you didn't want to? Well, I went to like art teaching specifically, and this is a problem. I don't know if it's true in the U.S., but in Canada, mm. there's an issue with um, 
art teaching in specific, and I think it's an issue with education in general, where to teach you need, so in Canada, in order to teach, you need a bachelor's degree in whatever the subjects you're going to be teaching, and then you need a teaching degree. But for the longest time, there weren't practical art degrees. So it meant that 90% of high school art teachers were art historians. So they'd have an art history degree. They'd be trying to teach people practical art. So most of my friends in art school were always frustrated because they would exceed their art teacher at a specific point in time, sometimes like Mm, grade nine. And they were like, I wish we had better art teachers. So I went and did my Bachelor of Education because at the time I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I just went to art school because I just drew all the time, no matter what. And then I went to get my Bachelor of Education because I wanted it to be an option. So worst case scenario, I can teach art or whatnot. Now I teach I teach texturing and I teach animation in 3D for game art at a, a local college. And so then I, I believe you said you didn't really start then in working for like game studios and such like what. So I, I'm looking at your past it says concept artist at little guys what was that so little guy games was a sorry little guy games speak too quickly there was a mobile game it still is it exists it's a mobile game studio they do a bit more vr stuff now but when i first came out of actually teachers college i got married and i started i was working at best buy at the time and i was looking for work because <laughs> i just I, I got married in new zealand right and then i came back to canada and i mm-hmm. you know I just had to get the first job I could, which was working at Best Buy. And then I was applying for other jobs at the time, but I actually just got contacted outright by them. And that was during the mobile boom. So this is Mm. like post the original iPhone. So iPhone 1, iPhone 2, there was a huge mobile boom. And then the need for artists kind of rose dramatically. I think it's kind of funny because I I tell people this all the time because I meet parents that discourage their kids from going into art or things like that. And I tell Mm -hmm. them, like, when I graduated from teacher's college, there was literally 10 times more art jobs available than there were teaching jobs. You went there because there were just a lot of openings in mobile, or did you think you wanted to do that? They contacted me. So at the time, Mm -hmm. I actually, my my wife and I got married, and we had our first kid on the way. And they contacted me, and they offered me, like, a starting position with a salary so low it's laughable, to be honest. And Best Buy, actually, because I was the, it was actually one of the best salespeople in our district, so they offered me full time as well for with like health benefits and whatnot. And I had to choose, do I take this like safe path or do I take this super low paying art path and see where that leads me? Mm-hmm. One, of them, one of them seemed more safe, but had way more prospects in the future. So I ended up taking the game job and I worked on, oh, I worked on uh, super snack time was a big one that I did. Um, Stick Wars one, two and three. I don't know if you remember those. But we had a contracting agreement, so I did... That sounds familiar. Did yeah. all of the packs for those, so I worked on all three of those um, and other things. But they were, you know, at that point in time, there was like a big push in the industry to get people to work weekends and whatnot. And I had a small kid at home, and I ended up, after a couple of years, I left there and I ended up working at an educational company doing art for educational assets. And then I worked there for a couple of years, and then... I thought I was done with games because my first experience wasn't the best, mm. but I got shipped on a lot of titles. So typically what happened with me is I ended up working at a studio at on some project that they had going that they had an artist that they liked the work of, but they didn't produce enough work. And then I would have to match the style and I would often double or triple the output of work. So... I did that for several things, but I didn't really have any projects on my own. And the same thing happened with Massive Damage. So I actually was... I, I took parental leave on my other jobs because I was done with it, the, the education company. And um, 
I ended up getting contacted immediately by a buddy of mine whose friend had left as the lead artist at Massive Damage. And they had done half of the art assets for Halcyon 6 and they mm-hmm. needed the rest of them. And I was, so I, I ended up just, I wasn't even going to take it at first because my first experience with games was so terrible. So I, I decided to take it. And then it was uh, probably the best decision I made in that regard. It was great. So I went from working on, you know, other things to working on indie games. So away from mobile onto indie. Uh, and the, the, man, the mentality is so much different. Like I don't let my kids play mobile games at all. But I'm not anti-gaming. They can play PC games. They can play console games. Yeah. They can play whatever. But it's like, I worked in in mobile games and you would have those meetings and they were so different. It was never like, how much do you enjoy the game? It was like, oh, at 92 seconds, the telemetry tells us that they get uninterested. So let's put something sparkly there. It's like, versus, you know, working a massive damage. And it's like any conflict you have is just because everyone really wanted the game to be good. And it's like, I can appreciate that. Well, I mean... I get. Let's take a second to talk about that. Then I mean, and I because someone's asked me recently on what was it on? It was it was, it was a reader mail. Um, oh, for the uh, loose ends I just did uh, live stream, and it was like you know, kind of like why is mobile gaming bad? <laughs> but like, I, I I'm sure you're familiar with just the race to the bottom that happened in the early app stores, basically, right? It's just no one wanted to pay for them. There were some AAA attempts, I believe, early on in mobile gaming, and they just didn't sell, right? Infinity Blade, right? Epic. Mm-hmm. Getting... So, I mean, that's where Unity came to be a huge player as well, if you want to talk engines. Because Unity came in being one of the first mobile first and the ability to port to multiple platforms kind of simultaneously. Um, and that opened a huge wave as well. I was a little pre-Unity. We were working on a custom engine that we made but for mobile. But if you're, if you're talking about mobile specifically, it's interesting. It's like I can... There's a couple things that Apple did that I kind of despise. And I'm not not saying anything bad about Apple, but they devalued games. So mm-hmm. games went from earning reputation. You know, if you go from like the, you know, 70s and 80s, the arcades to console games to PC games to games earning status to earning their valuation of like 60 or 70 dollars, then you had the App Store come out and they were afraid to put anything above 5 bucks. And mm. it completely changed the value proposition on games. So then people, because if you look right before that, the DS was crazy successful right before the iPhone. And oh yeah, oh the game and the Game Boy, the Game Boy. I mean, my God, and everything from Nintendo and even the PSP. I mean, even the Game Gear did kind of okay relative, like it sold as well as a, a Wii U, I guess. And the PSP sold pretty dang well, all things pretty considered. Good it's not in yeah about 40, 50 million consoles, double double Eight. Wii U. But uh, 85. 85? Really? That many? <laughs> Anyways, the specifically the, uh, like, okay, with the 3DS, so the DS right before that, people got used to spending like $39 on a game, right? Mm-hmm. And then you would hope it was good. And then the iPhone came out and then they devalued all of those games to $5, right? And then gaming had to kind of find its footing again because it, it's, a, it's a weird thing to say, but it's like when games got devalued like that, people were just like, now people were abrasive to paying full price for games, especially mm-hmm. not like you or me, probably, but like the no. mom of some kid or a grandmother or whatnot. They got more abrasive to to even just being willing to pay that upfront for games. And then they, they don't feel like they're worth that much, right? And it's like, 
that's a huge problem. Games, you know, games are so much work. It's, it was, it's a crazy thing to have devalued it at that part in the process when the costs were going mm. up exponentially. And, you know, I'm sure... You- Who, whose fault do you think it was? Do you think it was consumers' faults for insisting everything be free, like that flashlight app they downloaded? Or do you think it's developers for... I mean, because developers are just following the money. Typically, publishers are too. And they're like, look, no one will buy these things for 20 bucks. Well, I mean, people were buying them for 20 bucks. It was just, I don't know what started that trend, but I mean, obviously that's what created the whole free-to-play thing and everything from there as well. But it's <sighs> mobile gaming. Like, I'm sure you remember when you and I were, you were you're probably, what, five or six years younger than me? Mm-hmm. But when the iPhone first came out, all of my gamer friends, like gamers and whatnot, when the iPhone first came out, they, were, they picked one up and they were mm-hmm. excited to try games on it. And then I talked to those same friends in like five or six years and none of them played games on their phone anymore. It's like that whole demographic saw the potential in it and then they dropped off as soon as they, the, the promise wasn't delivered. You know, some of them played like Infinity Blade and they're like, oh, cool. If more games like this come out, they'll play them. But it was it was too devalued. And so I, I was just looking up while you were talking Angry Birds and that was from 2009 and it was, it was $1. Yeah. So games like that, I think, but people bought them, you know. Well, I mean, if any game you have sells for a, a dollar, right, and then you sell like 50, 60 million copies of it, you're singing, right? And all the merch that came with it, like I guarantee they didn't make <clears> most <throat> of the, but it's it's one of these, these worst case scenarios because it's like Harvest Moon, that series survives mm. on selling 100,000 units every time it comes out. And it, it never does crazy well. Like Stardew has destroyed it now, which is funny. But mm-hmm. considering it's using almost everything that Harvest Moon created, but Harvest Moon reliably gets a hundred thousand to two hundred thousand units in sales, and that's a really cool. You know, there's a lot of game studios that just survive off of those kind of numbers for long periods of time, but they need that at least twenty or thirty dollars. They can't survive off of that many purchases at five dollars or at four dollars. And there's no merch on games of that price, right? It's like you need to get to a specific size to warrant you know, merch or warrant specific things that make it. So it's like, it's kind of like, you know, what Dota 2 and League of Legends take 90% of the revenue for games in the year, right? And it's like, and then all of the other games have to split up what's left of the revenue. I mean, they're different gamers playing these things, but when you look at it financial success-wise, that's kind of how it plays out. So I'm I'm actually trying to think of how to ask this next question then, because we're kind of dancing around a couple of subjects that I... I want to explore more because I don't feel like enough people are having like, in my opinion, right, maybe intelligent or deep discussions about it is what do you how do you feel about in general then games pricing? You know, you see Sony trying to push $70 and some companies like Activision are <laughs> and are all too happy to say we agree, make them 70. But then what do you, but then, you know, what do you think about that? Games pass, like, where do you see the direction going? Because it's actually very, it's very interesting right now how it seems like a lot of different price points are surviving successfully at the same time, yeah. I feel. Yeah, and there's, I mean, there's different scales of games too, right? It's like, I, I work for at an indie studio with like 10 to 12 employees. So you can survive on a much smaller success scale. Obviously, you're hoping for a bigger one. But, you know, the AAA games, it's like, I mean, I could tell you some stories, but, um, you know, it's like, they need 10 to 100 times more of that. It's like, I was talking, I was, I was on that plane and you can ask me more questions about this, but I ended up being on my trip to GDC 2018. I ended up sitting beside mm-hmm. one of the lead artists on Red Dead Redemption too. Oh, excellent. And <laughs> um, he was telling me that they had like, I think it was between five and seven horse artists. 
<laughs> so it's like, can you imagine the scale you need when, when your entire horse artist staff is almost the size of our staff, right? It's like, yeah. there is a, a reason why those games cost more. Now, there's, there's two arguments for this, right? It's like, the big thing is who's paying for it. And we're kind of seeing this with the GPU market right now. It's a, a, mm. a shady thing that's pushing out gamers to some extent. But it's like, if I imagine me now, it doesn't bother me that games went up by $10 more. I work in games and I value mm. them. And that's something. Mm-hmm. But 15-year-old me would have... Mm, yeah. I agree with both things you said. When I was younger, I would have hated it. Now that I'm older, I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> it's $10 and I want these studios to succeed, you know, for the ones that I buy. What was our path? Our path when we were kids was probably piracy until we could afford the game later at a lower price, maybe, right? And it's like... I, I, I mean... It- uh, speaking for myself, at least like before even the 360 and PS3, I just remember like on GameCube and PS2 having like only 10 games total. And I played all of them 100 times because that was all I could I had. I could afford to maybe get one used game that was two years old from like a blockbuster that <laughs> they were selling off. Like, you know, that's what I could afford is games like that. I, and and I didn't have any real way of knowing which game was good because the internet wasn't as ubiquitous back then. Yeah, for sure. We, you, had to, you had to bank on like a cover sometimes, which is kind of Pretty funny, much. Because it's like, I, this, I, there's so many paths I can go in this conversation right now. But it's like, um, I kind of, I think it's kind of funny too, because it's like my favorite games are typically nowadays, like seven out of 10 that are really polarizing where it's some people's mm-hmm. 100 and it's some people's 60. And it's like, those are my favorites now, typically. Yeah. Most of the other games, I just forget. I, I, I like them and I play them, but they have no no resonance factor. It's like, you know, five years down the road, I'm like, what the heck happened in that game? I remember finishing it. But it's like, yeah, there's, there's okay, there's games are expensive to make and they, to some extent, warrant that value. But uh, they're alienating a part of the market that might mm-hmm. find a lot of fascination in games by putting it at that price point. And this yeah. is this is kind of what's happening with GPUs right now, right? The the demand for uses for GPUs outside of gaming are exceeding gamers' ability to buy them. Because a gamer can't afford a 3090 or a 6900 XT for two thousand plus dollars. Most people can't afford a 6700 XT. <laughs> but a, a content creator or a AI mm-hmm. researcher or a um, whatever, like a, a video editor or uh, a miner, all of those people can afford GPUs at that price. And this is a weird thing where we're being pushed out of access to our own market because of, of the, the, this is kind of the interesting thing about GPUs getting too general purpose in a way that now, you know, with, with obviously the, you know, dropping nodes and getting more, mm-hmm. more shaders and on GPUs, the amount of computation there is just exponentially increase it's absurd i mean even if ampere you could some people would argue cheated with how they get to the number i mean we're talking about 40 teraflops that's absurd to think about being in a graphics card 10 years ago you know but about games pricing and pushing people out of the market both with gpu prices and games pricing which is an interesting comparison because they kind of are happening at the same time this is well they are happening at the same time this is happening at the same time it seems like gpu is coming down a little bit but it's um it's kind of I mean, the game's price is going up by $10, $10 isn't terrible given inflation. I mean, a Super Nintendo mm-hmm. game I picked up when I was a kid was roughly the same price as yeah. games are now. So it hasn't changed that much. I actually think it's kind of remarkable. In Canada, housing is going nuts. So it's like houses have gone up in price by four times in the mm-hmm. last 10 years. But the games have increased like 5 to $10. It's like, that's kind of... I know. 
it's interesting where all of the money is being taken. But I mean, economics is something else entirely. You know, when it comes to games, it's like, yeah, it costs a lot of money to make games. They're hard to make. They're getting harder to make. And it's sometimes it's like, I'll buy a game twice if it's something that I really need to do well, like near Automata or something like that, that I really enjoy that I know won't sell enough copies on its own. But yeah, I don't know. I think it's an interesting time when it comes to to games, but you have well, to watch it from alienated kids and stuff because those are your future demographics, right? Well, how much of this exploding games budget, though, do you think is kind of maybe needlessly self-imposed by some devs? Like, I think Rockstar clearly knows what they're doing. They're making so much money, and what they invest always seems to pretty much yield a good game. But when I look at games, and people listening, this will just be my opinion, right? Like maybe a new Assassin's Creed, I would go, so how much time was spent doing all this motion capture and all this testing for this, like, half of these side missions that no one's going to get to nor play, so you can say it's a 100-hour game? Would it be better for you to have finished the game six months earlier $20 million less and sold it for 60 or $50. I mean, that's probably not what the distance difference would be, but you kind of see what I'm getting to, right? Like how much do you actually want when it's done and at its best, just finish it, polish it and get it out the door. Maybe stop tacking on all this stuff that I think has questionable usefulness. But this is, this is a, a us versus, uh, okay. This is, I can answer this in a weird way. So please we, do. We shipped our game, right? It's like some people it's too easy and too uh, short, and other people, it's way too hard and way too long. And we get mm. bombarded with negative reviews and positive reviews on both of those sides. We literally have a sea of reviews for Star Renegades that have both the complaint on one person as the positive on the other, and vice versa in many situations. And coming, trying to make a game that pleases everyone on all of those fronts is really difficult sometimes, right? And it's like, you'll have a subset of gamers that, that try to like find every nook of content in your game. And you'll have a subset of gamers that, that are trying to speed through it. Like you and me, probably at this point, it's like, I typically, I look up how, on games on how long to beat.com before I play them now. And I'm like, oh, I can fit a 13 hour game in. That's cool. Yeah. It's almost a bonus to me now with how busy I am. You know, it's like, I think that, I think there are some complaints that Resident Evil 8 is a bit shorter than seven. And I was like. As long as it's just as good the whole time, I'm fine with it being 10 to 15 hours. That's exactly what I said. I was like, beautiful. Before, like, oh, exactly. Two, three hours shorter. I'm like, that sounds great. I'm looking forward to that. You know, let me bring in a reader mail here then. Timo H writes in, just like people can if they support us on Patreon, and he asks, how do you see game dev teams evolving over the next five years? I mean, this question both in terms of social constructs and hierarchies, and also in relation to tech and the tools evolving. I feel there is currently a trend to make bigger and bigger teams in ho like it's Hollywood, gigantic organizations, and then occasionally splintering indie dev teams like the early 2010s. I think a lot of gamers as outsiders looking in see some of these mega studios like gigantic machines that are blind to feedback. So how will this go forward, in your opinion? You, like if you're looking at the, I mean, tool-centric gaming has been a huge thing, right? It's like, look at what Epic's doing with Unreal Engine 5, right? You have you have all of these, these tools being developed. And I mean, to be honest, in a perfect world, we would open source and aggregate some of these tools to make game development easier. But so many of them are individual studios, black boxes of gameplay, right? Or mm -hmm. feature set. So it's like, yeah, it's ballooning because people are expecting games to be more real. And that requires a lot more work to 
to, especially with bug testing and, and developing assets. It's like, we all joke at like my studio, you'll go to, you know, GDC 2018 or whatever, and whatever year you go and you meet barrel guy from Ubisoft who makes all of the barrels and wood assets <laughs> because yeah. that's, that's someone's job, right? It's like, we're getting a much better with like photogrammetry and stuff. And that's taking away some of the need, like what they're doing with, um, with unreal five in regards to, you know, lumen and nanite and all of that's absolutely insane for just, you know, using scans of assets, assembling them, jamming all of these things together and hopefully that will take some of that, but it also mm-hmm. pushes towards hyper-realism in games. And I don't know if that's always the place. You know, it's... The the indie versus AAA topic is kind of interesting. And this is actually something I talked about with the, the Rockstar game dev I was on the plane with. You know, the difference between being a, a big fish in a small pond and a small fish in a big pond, right? And one of the key advantages of working on a big... Um, a big game and whatnot is, is that you have that level of anonymity when you're in a small studio, if someone dislikes mm. an aspect of your game, they dislike you. Right. Yeah. It's like for every person that likes. Yeah. Them, it's brutal sometimes to some of those indie devs. Jeez. Well, yeah. And you see it occasionally, like when mass effect Andromeda came out and everyone hated it, <laughs> that they were, they were looking to hunt down the team that worked on it. But the, yeah, it's, it's absurd. I mean, come on, guys. As long as the game's mediocre, most of the time they'll just leave the, let the devs go, right? So it's, it's kind of an interesting thing in that regard. But I mean, this is what's kind of happened as a necessary dichotomy, I guess that's the right word, between indie and AAA. And indie games are constantly testing new systems, testing the waters to validate them for AAA because AAA is afraid oftentimes of doing a risky new system. They won't mm-hmm. want to make it with safe because it's such a big investment. When you have, you know, 100 to 200 artists and 200 programmer developers working on a game, you can't afford that kind of risk. So you're going to lean safer. But if you have a concept that's already proved in an indie game somewhere, you're a little bit more likely to try to implement these new things. So that kind of relationship's gone a long way. But video games can look like anything, right? And it's like, to some extent, it's advantageous, but we might hit in five years, we might hit the mm. uh, the post, what is it, the, uh, you know, hyper-realism, but we're going to hit, you know, when they invented cameras, right? Before, painting was a, me- a method of recreating reality in front of you, and it was necessary mm-hmm. for that. And then after, That's how you did it. <laughs> and then afterwards, we got all of the impressionists that came after we invented cameras, and all of these artists were liberated suddenly, mm. because they, reality could be captured... Mm. And because reality could be captured, people felt more free to deviate from reality and do what they that's, wanted. That's an interesting comparison, yeah. And we're probably going to hit that again in five or so years. We're going to hit a point. So it's like, I remember playing Uncharted 2 and then being like, man, yeah. this is one of the closest to real things I've seen in a game. And, you know, or whatever the other things, like every major innovation, like Doom 3 or whatnot. And then um, when you play like those games, it blows your mind, but that spectacle is short-lived and now everything's above that bar, right? Like almost mm-hmm. every game is above that, oh, bar, yeah. that bar for looking like reality. And then it's like, we're probably going to hit a wave where you can't differentiate between games that look hyper-realistic. And then games that look unique will probably stand out again because people will be like, well, you could play all of these 50 games that look identical or we can try this absurd looking thing, right? And that mm-hmm. I'm hoping that we see a bit of that because, I mean, I'm obsessed with tech as the next person, but there'll be a point in time, you know, it's like 
tech drives things to a certain extent. I usually use this example. Do you, I don't know if you remember Metroid Prime at all. It's like one of my favorite games of all time. I, I'm aware of it. <laughs> but it came out at the same time as Splinter Cell. And mm. everyone was flipping out at the time about Splinter Cell because uh. it was using real-time <laughs> like shadows yeah. in proper ways for gameplay for one of the first major implementations of that. And it's like, people were freaking out about it. If you go and look at Metroid Prime and, and uh, Splinter Cell now, Metroid Prime looks 10 times better than Splinter Cell. Like, art direction wins out massively in the end. Oh, yeah. Well, and, and one example that comes to mind for me, it's probably not as good of an example for sure, because back then you had some really radical... I mean, I don't even understand why some people tried to make games realistic in, like, the N64 PS1 era. It's like, what are you, It looks... Like, I played a Medal of Honor. I mean, this is probably 15 years ago, but I just tried out, like, I think it was Medal of Honor Underground on PS1, and I was just, like, laughing. Like, the view... Like, the, the, the feel... You could see, like, 10 feet ahead people had like triangle fingers like the least amount of polygons you can have to try to make it look like a finger uh, the ai would just stood there like it, it was the funniest thing i'm like why'd they even try to make this look realistic I, the example i think of too is like a more recent one is like kill zone one versus halo whereas both you know, haven't aged as well as Mario or something. But I mean, to be fair, though, Halo definitely had more of an art direction, I feel. And Killzone went for hyper-realism, which at the time, well, you know, in some parts of the game, it looked amazing. But looking back on it, it just it looks hilariously bad. Oh, yeah. It looks absolutely hilariously bad. It's... <laughs> I mean, the era of forests where it's really just hallways with JPEGs on the wall, <laughs> and they call it a forest. It reminds me of Bushido Blade when you say that. Yeah. Literally corridors of <laughs> tree pictures. I think this is a good time to pivot into this question. So, Melodic Warrior writes in, what was the initial reaction that programmers and developers that you knew had when ray tracing started to become more than a buzzword in the gaming industry? Also, if you have the time, I want your thoughts on Unreal Engine 5. Okay. Uh, yeah, so you ray tracing. I mean, my thoughts on it are, are something else. We were all kind of excited, like when I talk about my game studio, and I was at the RTX event. like In 2018? In 2018, I was at the Gamescom RTX event. I was... I went there with a different question, and this is something that, uh, but I, I think it was exciting, but premature. And that was kind of the sense we got. Like seeing the demos there was a bit premature, right? It was like, mm -hmm. we were all excited of like, because all of these things, it's like, I wasn't looking at it. And I don't think most of the people at the event even were looking at it as this is what it's going to be. It was like, no, this is the implementation of something that's going to be really useful in, you know, 15, 10 to 15 years. <laughs> Where it's like not in three. <laughs> well, I, I mean, there's, there's no. I'm kidding. I I mean, I pretty much agree. Yeah. Like, if you work in games, you know all the places you cheat, right? It's like, for instance, ambient mm -hmm. occlusion is like all cheated, but ambient occlusion happens in real life when you know rays of light have issues bouncing into corners, so you get gradual fading. Like, you get the pockets of shadow in corners because light can't bounce as much into the corner, right? And that's why it happens. So it's a thing that we cheat in our pipelines, but it's free with ray tracing, right? So it's like, and that's if we're using it for global illumination, right? It's like, mm -hmm. this is this is kind of like the big questions about ray tracing. I have, I have questions about ray tracing in general, but it's like, I'm kind of wondering what can be done because we're getting to the point where we can do global illumination through other means that looks almost identical to ray tracing. Yeah. And then is it worth doing it with, ray tracing cores because ray tracing cores will always add time on the pipeline especially in nvidia yeah. implementation because it needs so much of the frame to be done to render 
that you end up with uh, you end up attacking time at the end of everything when you're using yep. it for that, which is kind of interesting because the acceleration is super fascinating. So if you imagine we found some other use of, for art and video games to use RT cores that we could use asynchronously, that would be amazing because that acceleration would be super useful, but waiting for your frame to be done before you do anything to it is kind of an issue. So I, I think that like generally the, the thoughts around it are, we want the hardware and GPUs. We're excited for the hardware to exist. Mm, as an option, at least, because you a, can use it for so many things. Well, and as a, a means to improve, right? Mm -hmm. Not for current implementation, maybe, but as a path <laughs> forward, right? That's kind of an interesting thing. Um, my thoughts in regards to Unreal 5 are a bit different. Like, I have issues with Unreal 4, and I can go into that when we talk about the... That one didn't seem as popular. I mean, maybe it was, I don't know, but 3 was ubiquitous. Well, yeah, but 3... I, and again, maybe hey, maybe I'm a dum-dum, I don't know, but at least what I remember in the 360 gen is everything used Unreal Engine 3. The Unreal Engine 4, I think we're seeing a lot more engines compete with it. Now, I know they're making more money than ever, so... It, you know, at least in AAA games, I've noticed that. This is this is kind of something like I, I was look. I've been honestly like lying in bed thinking about this conversation and thinking about what my paths to specific parts on hardware were going to be, and mm -hmm. I, I was kind of imagining where we would go. But when we're talking about this, you know, it's like all of this kind of comes back to when I went to Gamescom to the RTX event, and I was asking how tech reviewers. So I went to that that conference with a specific question to ask tech YouTubers. This is an issue that I've had with tech YouTubers. And this is, is how they review GPUs without ever using the word pipeline. It doesn't make any sense to me how you could ever review a GPU without the word pipeline. It, and for many good reasons. So if you took like a really concrete example of something like an RX 480 versus, or a 580 versus a 1060, this is like the most mm -hmm. fascinating thing ever. And we actually have proof. It's like people, play they'll, they'll do a, a video and they'll do like 30 games and they'll try to test the frame rates on it but there's we have proof that that field is skewed and i can if you look at the the 3d mark api overhead test which is like mm -hmm. one of the most fascinating things that no one paid attention to and when you look at the directx 11 results what you end up with is in single thread within with an rx 580 you end up with about 1.8 million draw calls per second, which is similar to a 1060. The 1060 in DirectX 11, uh, single, a multi-thread goes up to 3 million, so a doubling, and then you actually regress on an RX 580. And the reason that you do this is fascinating. So the reason is with the GeForce 900 series, NVIDIA stripped out the hardware scheduler. Mm -hmm. yep. Straight out took out the hardware scheduler, which is a bad thing to do that gave them a huge advantage at the time because it let yes. them cut down the amount of heat that was generated by the GPU, the amount of electricity that it was uh, pulling. So their cards looked a heck of a lot more efficient all of a sudden. And so what, what I confronted the tech press about specifically, and there was a couple of people I talked to and they were really good about it. I talked to Paul from Paul's Hardware. I talked to Hardware, uh, Hardware Canucks. I talked to PC Perspective just because I noticed who they were and I, mm -hmm. I grabbed them and I talked to them there. They probably remember me as the crazy person chatting about GPUs. But the funny thing is, is that this tells us something really important. It tells us, so, so first of all, the reason we have asynchronous compute in AMD GPUs mm -hmm. is because it has a hardware scheduler. That's what gives yeah. us asynchronous compute. That lets us queue up parts of code 
in the ACE engines to process later. But what this shows to us is now in DirectX 11 multi-thread, we have a massive pipeline stall on Radeon. So the NVIDIA card is doing that part of the pipeline two times faster, but this isn't a hardware limitation. This is actually a software yeah. block. So it's like, as soon as you go to DirectX 12 or Vulkan, uh, 1060 goes to what, 16 million, and uh, RX 580 goes to 25 million, 23 million. That, that tells us something. What it tells us is that when GPU reviewers put DirectX 11 games in their review of a GPU, it's not telling the picture properly. That there is a stall in the pipeline that's not a, a hardware thing. And this is why they're reviewing software, not hardware. So from, from a game developer's perspective, I would argue that when you have a, a PC hardware versus a console, with a console, you get like 90 to 95% of access to hardware. On PC, you lose 40%. So you're operating at 60% just on your base drivers. Now, the fact that we get game-ready drivers is kind of a bad thing. It proves that there's something wrong in the ecosystem. And what those drivers are actually doing is outright changing the code of the game to try to claw back as much of that lost 40% yep. as humanly possible. Yeah. So it's... it's and then what ends up happening, though, is AMD loses out on its advantage in that regard because, first of all, it doesn't have as many software engineers working mm -hmm. on them. Changing Which they're the, trying to fix that, but yeah. Changing the code of every game, right? And they also don't have... Um, they have things hit their GPU a little bit later because of the hardware scheduler, which console developers love. And this is something else I could get into. But the hardware scheduler does a lot of amazing things. It gives you things like... Like God of War has better particles than almost any game on the planet. Mm. And the reason it does is because it uses GPU accelerated particles during its shadow pass, from what I understand, from conversations I've had, and I, maybe I'm wrong, I might have heard it miswrong from somewhere else, but from what I understand, because when you're, you use your shadows, that uses your, I think it uses your ROPs, it doesn't use, no, your TMUs. Use your TMUs, it doesn't use your shaders. So your shaders are idle in your shadow pass of the pipeline. So with your async compute, you can queue up all of your GPU acceleration and you can use it during that section when you have your shadow pass pass by or things like that. There's ways that you can queue these things. And I'm not a developer, I'm an artist who's talked to a lot of developers, but this is, it's kind of fascinating to me because um, what happened is I ended up stuck on a plane on the way back with someone who worked at Ubisoft, I think on Assassin's Creed, and they were mm. telling me how they downgraded their, I, I, it might be a different game. I'm trying to remember. I don't want to get misquoted on this, but they they were telling me how they had to downgrade their game when they were putting it on PC because mm. not all of the gamers, not all computers have GPUs with accelerated, with asynchronous compute. So that means that mm -hmm. they had to go from using really nice particles to using GPU accelerated particles to CPU based particles because they don't have asynchronous compute to lie on. And someone out there with a 1050 or something is going to have big issues playing a game that's requiring so much from the GPU, especially in an API other than like Vulkan. But this is kind of what my my point in this is, and going back to kind of what you said, you don't care. It's about frames. And I understand where game. Well, I care about latency and stuff, but assuming the latency isn't an issue, which is certainly up for debate what I even mean by that. Yeah. The, you know, but at the end of the day, when I play it, which one runs better? Generally, that means higher frame rates that are more consistent as well. Obviously, if you lose consistency in the frame rates, that's everything. But, you know. That's, you know, what I'm reviewing. Now, if you're trying to, I, I don't know if you're going to get to this, if you're trying to predict which one's going to run better in the future, um, 
I mean, yeah, uh, it's hard to do that though without coming off as biased because all they're going to do, honestly, honestly, just from a a real politic, like let's get down to brass tacks and be honest about this. Like a reviewer might be hesitant to do that because if they say, well, I'm going to tailor my games to try to predict the future. All you're going to get is everyone in the comments saying what you're doing is being a fanboy, you know, and it hurts them. Oh yeah, totally. And that fanboy stuff goes all over the place. And this is kind of interesting for me. It's like purely a hardware reviewing perspective. Cause what I'm obsessed with is the hardware. And my biggest fear is a monopoly. My biggest fear as a monopoly is because that gave us quad cores for like 10 years. And, you know, that's that's what ends up happening when you have a monopoly in the playing yeah. field. You end up with someone just kind of releasing the same thing over and over again with really slight iterations. And Radeon gets a bad rap because they they lost three generations with better hardware, in my opinion. Mm. The hardware performs worse in Windows. So gamers are right to have an issue with how the hardware performs. But they, okay. might, they might not think as poorly of it as they do if they understood that it wasn't performing as it should, right? And this is kind of my thought. I might actually take the devil's advocate argument and say it shouldn't matter. This is how it performs. It doesn't matter whose fault it is. And gamers should only want the performance they're getting. Yeah, I think that like my, my heart, this is my personal heart, is I just want people to view the hardware for what it is. And when I want mm. NVIDIA to beat AMD, I want them to beat them by out-engineering them. And when I want AMD to beat NVIDIA, I want the same. I want both of them to just be trying to build the best cards they possibly can. And that's what's, what's personally fascinating to me. And the, the issue is, is when, because there's a bunch of things that happen in regards to this. So when you have like a pipeline stall, right? It means that technically every DirectX 11 game a reviewer puts in their pi- in their their bench is skewing hardware, right? It's it's just a technical thing because yeah, they'll be playing those games. But I was going to say, but that's the game they're playing, man. Come on. That's fine, but the thing is that they're saying that they're reviewing hardware when they're really reviewing how software performs, right? And this is, it's a distinction, but it's a distinction that changes your outlook on the product itself. And this is what I think is fascinating because it's like, I can forgive something that isn't doing its best because it can't, right? I can't forgive something that I feel like isn't doing well. Let me move the conversation forward with this though, right? Because I I understand what you're saying, but something you wanted to bring up is you... You said you asked a lot of devs if they were building a console, would they put like a Vega 56 or 64 in it? Or let's just say 64 because it's closer. Would you put a Vega 64 in it or would you put a 1080 Ti? Well, I was surprised at the time because that was before I'd gone to any major conferences and I expected. And so was this like right after Vega came out? So like 2017? I guess it would have had to have been, wait, didn't the 1080 Ti come out? Yeah, it came out in 2017 before Vega. Yeah, yeah, yeah. this is pre any of, this is when they were the two most recent cards on the market, which is, and I was just surprised because I expected given the perception of, you know, like being on the internet and watching videos that almost all of them would pick 1080 Ti, mm. but almost none of them did. Mm. And specifically when it came up, it was almost always because of taking advantage of things like asynchronous compute in your pipeline and things like that. So, but you're saying though, all things considered, all things being equal, if Vega were, in your opinion, based on what you've, based on, and not just your research, but talking to people, like actual developers that understand the hardware and program it, they said if Vega 64 had been fully utilized, that it should have performed as well as a 1080 Ti or better, is what you're saying. It's not even necessarily that it performed better or whatnot. It was that there was more they could do with it in a console. 
right? Especially mm, for like GP GPU and yeah, they they had both half floats on Vega sixty four, right? So mm-hmm. that they can mix up the workload between half float and full float, and they had. Um, yeah, they have asynchronous compute. They had all of the async compute engines and the developers were really used to using them on PlayStation and Xbox at that point in time. So it was more so the feature because in a weird way with PC development, you you have to tack on features. So mm-hmm. base development is kind of feature weak, hardware rich, which is the exact opposite of consoles in some regards. It's a bit more like feature rich and hardware weak. Mm. So you have access to a lot of hardware features on a console like like asynchronous compute where you can queue up things. Direct access, you know, and, and un, unencumbered, you might say, access. Whereas when you make the game on PC, you still have to make it to the lowest common denominator. I, I can't even tell you how many times someone says that mm. our game's running terribly and they're like, look at their hardware like, oh my gosh, you're I running know. on like a Phenom times four still, right? Like... <laughs> What are you doing, right? It's like you have, and then they might have put in a crazy GPU, and they think it's okay. And it's like, oh, there's there's so many ways to bottleneck a PC. But it's, uh, anyways, that's it's kind of that's what they were saying. And it wasn't necessarily that it'd be more powerful. It's what they would have preferred in a console, right? Mm-hmm. It's like for the ability to have access to more things because all of that stuff. So, so if I may, then it kind of sounds like what you're saying is they would have, they found the Vega architecture to be more malleable to different types of special effects and different types of games. Whereas the 1080 Ti was really good at running DirectX 11 fast as hell. Right. But if you wanted to add a new effect, a new particle effect, um, like some of the stuff like that, I know, um, just cause we're on the subject. I know that like, for example, the PS4 and PS4 pro like double the asynchronous compute units that they should have had to their desktop counterparts. And that if I remember correctly, infamous second son used that for crazy particle effects. Well, this is, you can use it for particle effect. It's kind of interesting cause it kind of pulls in the ray tracing debate again. So it's like, should you ray trace shadows? It's like, mm-hmm. If you ray trace shadows, you're taking away the part of your pipeline that would leave your shaders free to do asynchronous compute workloads, right? It's like, there's there's kind of funny things like that where it's like, what are the trade-offs? Is it worth it? You can do a bunch of stuff for basically free performance if you have specific things being rasterized by other components. But it's like, the, the argument's just more nuanced. And I kind of just, I, I guess I'm personally craving nuance in arguments. And that, you know, it might not be appropriate for gamers, but I wish there was somewhere on the internet where you hear more conversations like this, right? That's kind of my thought in this, where you have, it's like, the, you know, the 1060 versus the RX 480 is fascinating because the 1060 has way less shaders, but it has more ROPs and it has, mm-hmm. you know, and it's like, so there's specific parts. So it's like, you can tell, it's like you watch Digital Foundry or something and they'll have, every time an explosion hits a scene, the 1060 will chug and the 480 will be fine. Yeah. Right. And it's yeah. like, but people aren't talking about pipeline and reviews. So it's like, I see what you're saying. You know, it's like there's there's so many nuances to these architectures. And the same thing is true with if you want to get into like the 6900 XT versus the 3090, because it's like the 3090, Adore did an amazing job of explaining the shaders in it. But it looks like whenever they get an int instruction, it turns off the half of the shaders every time you get an int instruction in the mm-hmm. pipeline so the shaders is kind of like it's funny because they double their shaders but they they destroy their ipc in the same generation yeah oh it's it's like literally like one-to-one consistent you can look and see that a 
All things considered, a Turing teraflop, I'm putting my hands up to make quotes, a Turing teraflop is like 33% better than an Ampere one, pretty consistently across the board to the point that it's almost funny how one-to-one it seems to be in every matchup I've done with graphics cards between them. When the 5700 XT caught up, which was really interesting because the 5700 XT right next to the 2070 Super, their hardware is almost identical. I think they have almost identical shaders, ROPs, and TMUs. And provided the game ecosystem is identical, they perform almost exactly the same, clock for clock. So it's interesting going to Ampere afterwards, where you you actually have... The opposite now, radio. Yeah, no one saw that coming. By the way, I, I you know I had my ampere leaks where I got some things wrong. I don't know. Almost no one saw the doubling of CUDA cores coming, which tells you, and it's almost in the opposite direction you'd expect them to go. Watching them go to Turing, and it's like, oh, and then they just, oh, they just went back to lower IPC out of nowhere. Holy crap! Nowhere. <laughs> but they they really ramped up the shaders, and it's like, yeah, that's and that's the the fascinating thing because it's like. Now it's it's weird because you'll hear people say like, oh, the 6900 HE is really uh, is really good at like raster, right? And mm-hmm. then the ray tracing performance is better on the 3090. And it's like, but it's even, it's much more nuanced than that. It's like- Oh, I agree. The 6900 XT has less shaders, but it has way higher clocks and it has a similar amount of ROPs and TMUs. But mm-hmm. those clocks mean that, that the 6900 XT is like a fill rate and texel monster. So the parts of the pipeline that are texels and and just like fill is nuts. It's going to be so short on those parts of the pipeline, and then it'll be slightly long on the shader parts of the pipeline. So it's like, it's it's just it's a more nuanced argument, right? So it's like one of them is going to win whenever you have those types of game yes. code, and the other one's going to win whenever you. And then games that use more of one effect type or feature type and how they build their game will will do better on one versus on the other. And it's it's kind of fascinating, right? Well, and I've, I've done a decent amount of reviews now too. I've, you know, messed with the 6800 XT and one that seemed to overclock incredibly well. You know, an A6000, a 3080 Ti, 3070, 6700 XT. And I, I just find that a lot of the times the Ampere competitor to whatever they're matching it up with from AMD, it doesn't perform as well as I feel like it's often perceived to as being better at, you know, certain resolutions and stuff. But if you're in 4K, assuming you're not running out of VRAM, which you are all the time with a lot of these Ampere cards, it tends to not drop as much in like the mid frame rates in 4K, probably because of how many shaders it freaking has. And I find that, and it's almost like the opposite of what happened with Pascal. Again, it's almost the opposite of Pascal is yeah, what Ampere yeah. is. It's, it's, I know, it's, it's all really- Not that RDNA 2 chugs. I actually don't find it does because it certainly has enough shaders. Yeah, they're, well, they're both, they're really interesting. And it's like, it's one of these weird things because it's like, I always go to Game GPU, which is like a Russian site that does really good, uh, they, they have the most comprehensive, like, and it's like every time I see the Unreal logo on it, the game will run mm. 30% worse on Radeon hardware, right? Mm. And it's like, and I know with Unity, like Unity, I work in Unity all the time and it has um, like physics as its base set up for how, like I'm, I'm going to give Unreal 5 a clean slate because they're building Nana, uh, Niagara and they're doing, they're stripping out a lot of proprietary technologies and building their own. So I'm excited to see where that goes. Mm. But there's a lot of proprietary technology built into both Unreal and Unity. And it's like, because I'm always excited with the hardware innovations. I'm like, what can this do? What, like, 
I was probably more excited, like the most excited I've been by NVIDIA in a long time when they announced RTX, just because I'm like, what can this do? Where can we see this going, right? And it's like, versus stripping out hardware schedulers. That doesn't excite me, right? I'm like, oh, what does this mean that we can't do, right? From a game developer's perspective, but... Well, you brought up RTX again. If you don't mind, I kind of want to get to some of the reader mails regarding it. Um, Type2501 writes in and he asks... I would like to know about the future of ray tracing and game development special effects. At first, we were promised that ray tracing would lower the development cost of good-looking games by removing the need of labor-intensive pre-baked shadows and lighting. Fast forward to today, what has ray tracing actually brought to the table, and will it change the gaming industry like rasterization did in the 90s? Thank you very much for coming on, by the way. Yes. It's like there's so many things that we cheat right now in our pipelines, right? There's like... Like ambient occlusion is a cheat across the board. Reflections are cheated across the board, right? It's like all of these things, technically, if you had a game that you were using perfect ray-traced reflections and global illumination, you would be able to build the game simpler. Mm-hmm. But everyone has to have that hardware. So for one person to have that hardware, you don't get the advantage of that. You still have to build your raster version of the game first and then, then tack these things on later. But for the future, yeah, the future does promise that. When we have RT cores that perform 10 times better than they currently do, or an algorithm that's 10 times more performant, who knows? One of those two things happening, right? I'm sure with the consoles, we'll start to see some really, really low-cost good uses of ray tracing in about two to three years. We're not going to see it yet. But um, well, and it's it, can I, to bring it. I have actually a couple examples too of like my problems with ray tracing. It's like, which I think I'm kind of just maybe this co- type of conversation's been had to death, but it's like really, it seems super useful at shadows, like you brought up. Like, that's just they, I, I'm going to be honest, on most games I've turned like five years ago, I would turn shadows down to medium because I thought the ultra shadows were just like more of them and blurrier than what the medium shadows look like. They didn't actually look. They're probably more accurate in real, to, close to real life, but I didn't actually find they looked good. I thought they looked pretty terrible, like the flickering, like low res shadows in Far Cry games and stuff, especially like, in the self shadowing. Yeah, and it's like so if we can do that, and it like saves a ton of work on all these pre baked shadows, and it looks better. Okay, but like when I play Modern Warfare in Piccadilly Circus. That uh, reflections in the puddles that's pre-baked looks pretty good. And when I play Chivalry 2, because I just got that, you can kind of see reflections off of the armor without using ray tracing. Now, what they're really probably doing is just knowing where a shadow is, and it really just shows a shadow. It's not really reflecting anything. But it's close enough, you know. Dull armor in real life, I can't see my face off of it. So is it really worth using so much computational power to do a dull reflection that you can't even really make out what's in the reflection much better than if we fake some just basic shadow reflection? If you know what I mean by that? Yeah, well, you usually have like three three or four different paths to doing reflections. So it's like you either do planar reflections, which are pretty expensive and very limited in terms of how many you can do and how many surfaces you have. Or you have screen space reflections, which only have the content that's in screen space. And that's the limit with them. So you can use them to represent things pretty well. But And then if you use... Um, Ray trace reflections are much. I don't know if you played Ratchet and Clank, but it's a pretty good example of. How, I have not yet actually. How good no. Ray trace reflections can look. It's probably the best example I've ever seen. But um, like with in regards to shadows, the big problem with sh- it's like it all comes down to the question of accuracy, right? It's like the big thing that's accurate. Like shadows are inaccurate when you bake them versus um, 
uh, when you do it in real in ray tracing, because the ray tracing ones, as it's closer to an object, it's mm -hmm. very sharp, and then it gets blurrier as it gets further away. Where mm -hmm. it's kind of universally blurry when you do it the yeah. the the baked way. But it's like you want to, like there's going to be we're going to find the best case uses. There's going to be some game yeah. that's gonna that's going to it's going to be probably a Sony <laughs> Sony game that does something in a way that that really pushes what can be done with ray tracing, especially after mesh shading. I don't think we can, we have to change our engines right now. And this is the, yeah. because mesh shading should give us like, once we get mesh shading and um, variable rate shading in all of our engines, it's going to reduce the amount of time everything else takes, which frees up more time for ray tracing because all gamers care about is how much time it takes before the frame hits their eyes, typically. Mm -hmm. How we get there is one thing or another, right? It's like if we can shorten the amount of time all of the rasterization costs by having um, mesh shaders built into all of our engines, then all of a sudden we have more time for ray tracing and having the same frame rate. And it's like, I guess I, it always kind of drives me nuts too hearing hardware reviewers talk about re resolution GPUs or these GPUs for this resolution or this, because <laughs> it's like, it's so arbitrary to me. It's like, how good should the game look? And that's what game developers are asking mm. themselves. They're not saying this GPU is for this resolution. I've never heard a game developer say that. Maybe some do, but I haven't talked to one that does. They're all just talking about how to make a game look that much better, right? It's like- I, I think the whole resolution debate's gonna feel very old fashioned in a few years because we're getting to the point where, you know, whether it's DLSS or FSR or TSR or whatever weird TAA injection, down res, up res thing, Returnal or Deep Rock Galactic or Demon Souls does from a lower res base resolution. And then parts of this scene are actually being up res from different resolutions than what that object was. You know, I think it's just all going to look better than 1440p and people will be happy. And it, I would hope so. It's just like, does the game look sharp? I don't really care. Just make the frame rate consistent now, please. Yeah, well, that's that's. I don't think a dev out. Well, maybe there's one or two, but I think the vast majority of devs out there wouldn't want to spend more than 1440p on their base resolution. They would mm -hmm. want to spend the rest of their budget making the game look as good as humanly possible. And like, I just see gamers kind of talking oddly around this because it's like typically the question for a, from a developer's perspective is: Do you want twice the frame rate? Do you want the game to look twice as good? Right? It's like. Because that's kind of what it comes down to. Do you want to spend all of your resources on on visuals or do you want to spend all your resources on frames? And there's reasons for both. And it's like you wouldn't want to do spend it all on visuals if you're you're making, you know, a game like Rocket League. It doesn't make any sense. You want as many frames as humanly possible to get the lowest input latency that you that you can, but it really depends on the type of game. So it's a question for each developer. And then but you know, some developers they maybe they want to have a game look gorgeous but murder computers but also be competitive right it's like well i i want to bring up this I, you saw me scrolling around i want to bring up this reader mail because i knew we had one in the basket here for it you know, no matter what platform I use for a main benchmarking station, one thing that I always know will be true is that a long-term sponsor of mine, CDK Offers, will most likely be providing the keys. CDKoffers.com is a keys website with legitimate keys that supplies PlayStation, Xbox, and Windows software keys at a reasonable price for what you're paying for. Nobody wants to overpay for anything, including over $100 for Windows. You don't need 
need to get a legitimate professional key of Windows 10 for a reasonable price from cdkoffers.com. And make sure you use the offer code BROKENSILICON to get a big discount on Windows software and DieShrink to get a reasonable discount on everything on the website. Go to cdkoffers.com today and make sure they know Moore's Law is Dead sent you. Kenahoon25 writes and says, Hey, Tom and Brian, with products like Raptor Lake, Zen 4, RDNA 3, and whatever NVIDIA's next generation is on the horizon, and they're all rumored to have massive jumps in gaming performance, how would this rumored boost in performance cause a shift in game development? My current rig has a 9900K and a 6800 XT, and I find it very easy to run games at 4K 100+. At a certain point, wouldn't developing games to run at 8K Ultra 120 just be too ridiculous? Would focusing more compute power on improved AI, uh, other things that go into making something photorealistic, world building, asset streaming, and more realistic lighting make more sense for the future of gaming than just always chasing resolution and frame rate? So this is is a fascinating question. The reason that this gets to be the question is because of the Mm. low end in the space, not because of the high end in the space. Because it's easy for someone who buys a 6900 XT or a 3080 or a 3090 mm-hmm. to say something like this. But when game developers are making it, they're going to get negative reviews from someone playing it on a 1030 with <laughs> uh, whatever, uh, a first generation i7. Like that will mm-hmm. happen and they'll give a bad review on the game. So then developers are trapped by the low end of hardware because they're going to be reviewed poorly by people who don't have a good experience, who have insufficient hardware. And then they're afraid to target the high end. Like Not every dev, but a lot of devs get, get afraid to do this because they just, they're worried, obviously, they need the game to run on the lower end to avoid being attacked by people. It's like, the funniest thing I can, I can kind of say is that same Rockstar person on the on that flight, when I sat down next to him and he told me he worked on Red Dead Redemption 2, the first thing I said to him is it must suck to have people attack you guys for uh, unoptimized Mm. PC ports for a draw call issue. And he was like, how did you know? It was the first thing he said to me. And this is kind of where all this comes from. It's like, well, and you know, you, they people. I just want to jump in here. They say unoptimized, but when I looked at the benchmarks, uh, PS4 Pro runs it at half 4K at 30 frames, and it certainly drops down to 25 or something sometimes in the cities. Uh, from what I saw on the benchmarks, like an RX 580 was running the game around 30 frames in 1440p, or a little better actually. So I'm like, as far as I can tell, it's running like it does on the same console hardware. You guys just have to understand how many animals are being rendered and moving around in the grass in front of you, and you just can't see half of the effects going on. That's why it's so intensive. I I just, I think people miss that. This is why they dropped DirectX 11 entirely with Red Dead 2. They didn't mm-hmm. even want to deal with this massive draw call stall in the pipeline and having people call them out for unoptimized. Because if you look back historically, Watch Dogs released, people screamed unoptimized. You know, GTA releases, people scream unoptimized. It's like the biggest open world games were the ones that were doing it. It's because of this massive shortage of draw calls happening and then it's like the more open world your game was, the more of an issue it was, and not because of hardware. This is purely software. The, the hardware can do it, right? So it's like game devs have to be scared for all of these things, right? How gamers perceive their games, right? So they, when, when they are making it for, like, the, let's say that for this console generation, they're expecting the worst case scenario to be like a 3060, right? Mm-hmm. That's what they're hoping. In three years, everyone will have at least a 3060, 
that that is their hopes and dreams i bet the most developers mm-hmm. because if that's the case then they can give everyone the games they want to make at 1440p that's what they're hoping for then they can make the games and go ahead pushing the graphics as much as they can so that everyone can have a good time at 1440p which leaves the vast majority of the over hardware people people with mm-hmm. more insane hardware they they the world of higher resolutions are left to them and and graphics features because this is the other thing is like a lot of the the features aren't the ones that devs may have wanted. And sometimes they are. Sometimes devs get to do whatever they want. But sometimes what happens is like the features they put ultra versions of are just scaled up versions of settings that already exist that scale well on shaders. So it's like, hey, we have, if someone has three times more shaders, we can triple their mm-hmm. class or whatever we can do. You know, you set little sliders in your thing that take advantage of, or we do times four on the you know, the volumetric lights or something like that, right? It's like you have you have these sliders and they do these kind of things, but it's not usually what the artistic intent is behind it. Just kind of funny because I remember Raja getting, when he worked at AMD, getting attacked for talking about how game developers, when he talked to game developers, he was saying that um, they were targeting medium settings where where the art direction was actually set for and then everything above that was not. Yeah, PC gamers were not happy hearing that at all, but it was... It's kind of funny, right? Because it's like, to some extent, it's not always the case. You see, you definitely see, like, I'm sure that the developers of Control and um, Metro Exodus would say the exact opposite. They just do what they want. I feel they're mm-hmm. good at that. They're good at riding the line. But smaller studios don't have as much resources to push around to do that kind of thing. Well, let me ask this question. Johnny Tightlips writes in and he says, in your experience, what single specification of the hardware you're making games for do developers typically wish they had more of? In other words, more RAM, faster storage, more CPU cores. What do they really want? As an artist, I have a completely different answer than a programmer. (laughs) Well, let's hear both. Well, I feel like my experience working on games is hilarious because developers waste as much RAM as they have. As if you, they'll always ask for more RAM. So mm. devs will almost always want more RAM. But I've seen and working on not necessarily this studio, but a lot of other game studios that, that I've worked with in the past, you know, the more RAM they have, the more they just fill needlessly. Just fill it right up. You just fill it right up. And then they're always optimizing at the end to just get mm-hmm. it below the line. And that's, that's what they do typically with RAM. So it's one of those things where I wouldn't say RAM is the most important. I'd always say, give me more shaders, give me more more uh, TMUs. I love, because I know some developers listen to this. I would love if they uh, chimed in the oh, comments. they probably if, would murder if, me. If, no, but maybe, I don't know, maybe some of them will admit they agree with you. But uh, And that is what I just watched a video about a Switch developer who said that's what they do. They make the game and they just try to fit it into the Switch's amount of RAM. Yeah. You know? Yeah. But in that case, you would say maybe they do need more RAM. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and it's like, you know, it's all time constraints too, right? It's like, you're always going to... Mm-hmm. exploit whatever isn't giving you trouble in game development. If, if you're having no problems with something, then you don't deal with it until it's a problem at the end. And then you have, you're almost always forced to target the things that are causing issues all along the way. So you wouldn't say RAM, though. What do you think they should be asking? I like shaders, drops, TMUs. That's my thought. You just want a 100 teraflop graphics This card. is an artist, right? Like, the more <laughs> you have from a... Of, of that perspective, the more stuff you can put in your scene, right? It's like, that's kind of where I get more excited, where it's like, but from a, a, 
And, you know, I think we're going to see really interesting things this generation because the PS5 and the Series X are the first time we're really seeing the CPU get liberated in a long time. Mm. I think mid-generation, we're going to see a big innovation with mesh shaders and we're going to see a big innovation with people finding uses for CPUs they haven't done before. And I don't know what they're going to be, but the fact that we're like, yeah, it's like a two or three X GPU performance increase on these new consoles, but it's like a six to eight times performance increase mm-hmm. on the CPU. And, and a 100X in the SSD. <laughs> and Ryzen's kind of fascinating because it's like, I think I think it's funny because like people think that the biggest innovation with Ryzen is the cores, but I'd say the biggest innovation that we haven't even seen the full potential of yet mm-hmm. is Infinity Fabric. I think Infinity Fabric, and I th- this, is, this is my personal speculation, but I think that's why AMD is buying Xilinx. Infinity Fabric seems to be something that Intel is having a huge problem creating a competitor for. Well, it works. It just uses a thousand watts in all of their products I've seen tested. Yeah. So it's it's one of these things where it's like, it's actually, it seems like it's much harder to do than people give it credit for, but it allows them to attach anything together. And yet, yeah, you're saying so it's not even just the, the fact that we can put multiple core chiplets together. It's just the fabric itself. The fact that we can put anything together is the innovation. Well, and this is why buying Xilinx is so important, right? It's like, mm-hmm. look at what Xilinx offers. Yeah, they offer FGPAs, which FGPAs is like, if you look at right now, TensTorrent, they're, they're, first FGPA that they, their first AI system they did was retooling an FGPA, right? Which is fascinating. And then, so you can build build AI architecture from there. And also Xilinx has AI processors as well. And it's like, it's very, really interesting because Infinity Fabric just lets you attach anything together. And mm-hmm. you, we're, we're not seeing the full potential of that yet. Yeah, GPU is a part of it. CPU is a part of it. But and yeah, it was a bottleneck in early Ryzen because it was what was slowing down latency between intercore connections and things like that. But it's a good bottleneck to have because you're in control of it. You can keep pushing that bottleneck forward. And the more you push it forward, the more it pushes mm. everything you put together. So it's like kind of like the Lego of the CPU world in a way. And, and Or it lets us turn it more into Legos. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm sure it still takes a, a ton of engineering like to to put anything even on it. But it's like... I think that's really AMD's strategy. And I think that's also NVIDIA's strategy for buying ARM is having whatever mm. they want to string together if they succeed in buying ARM. But I don't know. Like that's that's a big thing about where the future of tech's going. The future of tech is going to be going to accelerated workloads on something attached to yeah. all of the resources that they need. Yeah, that's one of my early videos where I was like, that's clearly where we're going to go once it's just putting specific use case tiles together that all do different things way better than a general purpose thing probably would. I think that's where I think that's where I would want to go, you know, if I was one of these companies. Yeah, well, look at like Secret Sauce when it comes to consoles and stuff. It's like, yeah, the GPU of the a PS5 is like kind of like a 2080 for basic operations, but it's a little bit better if you're looking at your TMUs and ROPs because the clock speed's so high. So it's What would you say it is actually because this is the stuff fanboys argue about. What do developers say? Well, this is this is my speculation. From a, a okay. pure throughput perspective, it seems like it'll perform pretty similar to a 2080. But the TMUs and ROPs perform probably closer to like a 3070-2080 Ti. Would be my See, that's what I've always said is it's between I've always said it's between a 3070 and a 2080. That That's always what I've said. And it just depends if they utilize it well, basically, at that point. Yeah. So that's a pretty huge jump. But the bigger jump in it is obviously all of the... They basically have an ASIC on it for 
hardware for asset decompression and compression. Mm -hmm. It'd be equivalent to like using four of your cores on your PC for nothing other than compressing and decompressing assets. So it's like, that's, that's pretty remarkable. And yeah, we're not seeing it used in anything other than Ratchet and Clank probably right now. Resident Evil 8 uses it for the loading and some of the stuff, suppose, which is why it loads at a reasonable rate for what it has. Yeah, using the what the Oodle library, it's like 16 gigabytes per second. That means you can load another game yeah, by the time absurd. you turn around, right? It's like, <laughs> yeah. we've never had... Yeah, I don't think developers are utilizing that or the Xbox as well as they should be like at all right now compared to where it could be. Xbox is interesting, but I, I don't know. I'd like from a hardware standpoint, it's fascinating, but... Yeah, I don't know. Like, we're going to see some really interesting things in about three years. And we're going to see the PC space change a lot, depending on which workloads need acceleration. Well, so perfect. Beefish writes in and he says, this is something that I've always wanted to ask a game dev that gets a lot of discussion on Reddit. Unfortunately, probably from people who don't know what they're talking about. Moving forward, how many cores or threads is enough in quotation marks, assuming a non-CPU bound resolution like 1440p, with the PS5 and the Xbox being an eight core design, are developers moving to eight cores being the new sweet spot? Or do you think four or six cores is going to be enough for five years for gaming on PC? Well, this is really like the this is a comes back to that entire multi-platinum developer versus a dedicated developer. Because like the Sony AAA games, I would guess that if, as long as they don't target PC and they don't target the last generation hardware like the PS4, what they can take advantage of there would be pretty hard to port to PC from a core perspective. Mm. So like yeah. I was saying before, if, if you have four cores worth of decompression and compression, you have two choices on the PC. You either have a loading time on the start and you need people to have a 16 gigabyte plus GPU. Because yeah. it's the only thing fast enough on the GPU to do that. I've done a video about that where I'm like, I just think literally like maybe the solution on PC is we just have so much RAM on the GPU, we just load the game into the RAM. I mean, screw it. Let's just do it. You'll have like five seconds of loading in the beginning and then there's nothing. Well, that works in some games, but it doesn't work mm -hmm. in, in sure. ideas like Ratchet and Clank, but something far in the future. Let's say they have a new Silent Hill where they have a crazy demon world on top of the regular world. And it's like... On the disc on the PS5, it's like 200 gigs, let's say. And it's mm. always switching back and forth between these sets of assets at a crazy speed. That would be really hard to do on the PC unless you had like four cores dedicated to just doing data throughput and having an NVMe drive. Well, do you think they'll they'll put it like an NVMe, like PCIe 4.0 drive on the graphics card? So maybe they'll have like 32 gigs of GDR whatever right i know this put a number at the end this and then well they made them before for professionals but i've always thought like i think the solution is obviously you just put a coprocessor and then like a one terabyte or you don't even need that half a terabyte quarter terabyte ssd on the graphics card and well there you go you, you're done you have the coprocessor on the graphics card you have the ssd on the graphics card you solve the problem they can just load the whole thing into the graphics card and now it's right next to it too lower latency yeah uh, like if we, if we were to go back to the question, the big thing there is that like the average multi-platform game will probably be okay with six cores, would be my guess, mm -hmm. right? Porting the hyper-specialized games will be a lot harder. It's like when you look at like a Unity or an Unreal developer, right? It's like they usually don't look at doing multi-threading as much until they need to. When they start getting into performance hurdles, then they'll start finding things to put off into threads. And then they end up using as many threads as they need right? 
as is necessary, or if they, they know they're going to be exceeding the amount of threads that they should be, then they have to start making other decisions. That's typically what I've seen. I don't know whether, like, I can't speak for every game studio, but that's mm-hmm. typically what I've seen. You branch out to more threads when you have them available, when you know that they're available, and when you start running into problems on your basic performance. Now, you can see that things are just taking up way too much time. And then if it's a specific type of thing that you see always taking up time, then you just set a bunch of them together and you put them off onto another thread. Um, like that type of thing. You, But I don't know what will happen. It really depends on how developers target multi-platform versus really exploiting what these things are capable mm-hmm. of. And this is kind of like what always interests me between the console and the space and the PC space. I'm most fascinated by PC hardware. I'm always mm-hmm. most fascinated by PC hardware, but I'm always most mesmerized by games pushing the limits of a console. When a game is scraping out that last like 2% in the corner of a nook of a console, that always blows my mind. And that's usually where we see art direction really strive in games. So that's that's an area where I always think that that's fascinating, but I'm always building crazy computers and things like that just to be aware of what's going on. And the future is kind of already in your house, even if it's not being used properly yet with a PC. So, mm-hmm. you know, there's there's going to be some big questions when it comes to CPU workloads going forward, especially with the types of acceleration. Like, th- this goes back, but like Forza 5, was it Forza 5 on the Xbox? So the Xbox One X had a ASIC on the die with the DirectX 12 instruction set on it. And it accelerated like three games. It was like mm-hmm. Gears 4 and 5 and Forza. But that game, so what it did is it, it did all of the, the calls for DirectX 12 on an ASIC, which is fascinating because those games ran so much better. Like mm-hmm. just those three games ran so much better because they were able to offload so much. And that's kind of taking advantage of secret sauce, but 90% of games never touched them. 95% of games yeah. never touched them because it's, it, you know, but, and I guarantee even just for backwards compatibility, that's in the Series X. So mm-hmm. there are ways to accelerate those workloads and those specific instruction sets. And, and if consoles are used fully, then yeah. there's, there's weird things where you have to find ways to make up for it on PC where they might not have dedicated hardware. More RAM. More that's RAM. usually how they do it. Yeah, <laughs> More RAM, bigger installs. Um, I mean, what would you... So would you say... Because to be honest, the way I would answer his question is just don't worry about it, right? Like, you'll be able to upgrade, man, you know? Yeah, six cores, you'll be fine, right? It's like yeah. probably be fine for the most part. It might, but... The- as long as it's not a Phenom 2 six core, like yeah, a recent yeah, six yeah. core. But if you have... you, But the thing is, I'll say that with a caveat. Six cores will carry you 90% of the way. You're probably going to hit between 10 and 20 games in the next four years. That will frustrate you, like, no belief. And you're probably, like... Individual gamers will probably get upset mm. at the developers for that, but it's not really their fault. They might have made a game too ambitious for computers mm-hmm. with that kind of hardware. So it's it's one of those kind of with a caveat. It's like, I think I would recommend eight if you can go to mm-hmm. eight, but six will probably be fine, but you will have some games. You'll have some games that'll- There's going to be some games that are just, you know, and, and, you, and we kind of, you know, we saw this with the PS3 and 360, and a, a lot of people complained about dev ports back then, which, to be fair, I think there was some problems with porting back then, but at the same time, it's like, guys, the 360 has six threads, the PS3, let's not get into it, uh, and but they're really strong CPUs relative to your dual-core two-thread, and 
you know, I, I don't think it's fair to just say it was a bad port. Like, why do I need more RAM? Why do I need, why is it such high CPU usage? It's like, well, because you're using a dual core and the consoles have more. Okay, so AC666 writes in, he says, Hi, Brian and Reese's owner. Reese is my dog. How much of a difference do you think there will be between the console approach of copying SSD data into shared memory for decompression by an accelerator versus direct storage, which seems to be copying SSD data into system memory to then be routed to the GPU and be compressed there? Also, do you think dedicated compression, decompression hardware will ever come to consumer PCs such as Intel's data streaming accelerator debuting in Sapphire Rapids? Cheers, as always. I don't know, like as an an artist specifically, I don't know necessarily Mm. the pathway of RAM, but um, I know that you can can reduce the amount of workload on the CPU quite a bit with, with hardware decompression and compression on the die. So I do think we're going to be moving towards that. I don't know whether it's going to be from the CPU or it's going to be the GPU that ends up doing that primarily. I don't know what like an engineer would have to tell me which one's better for that, but it's I think that we're going to be looking at the direct ML and, and these kind of things are definitely the future, having a better ability to transfer data quickly and lots of it because games are just getting bigger. And the bigger games get, the more we need that immediate transfer. And I don't think the traditional method, the traditional method doesn't necessarily, it creates latency, right? And we mask it in a Mm -hmm. lot of ways. It's like, it's kind of the problem with current VR too. It's like we do all of these things to try to reduce latency or even we're always reactive. We're trying to do predictive things reactively is what we're typically Mm -hmm. doing from a processing side with, with VR and with all these other things. And whatever we can do to make it closer to outright prediction better so Mm -hmm. i don't know that's probably the best well i mean i don't know if you listen to the dave eggleston broken silicon because this kind of going hand in hand with this question uh deepest learners writes and he says in servers we are on the brink of the cxl era where we will see benefits like a massive decrease in bus latency as well as cache coherency between the cpus and gpus and direct access to main memory for gpus do you believe you will see this filtered down to the consumer space how would that affect rendering pipelines and gaming compute generally what could we do in games with those capabilities that we don't do now which i guess let me ask did you listen to the dave eggleston broken silicon or do you remember it so like yeah like, i and now now i'm gonna sound like i didn't but like i he's worked for a lot of memory companies really is an expert at memory memory design and he was talking about how i mean a lot of people don't like um Optane, but it's because it hasn't even really been used. Like it's either used as RAM or it's used as an SSD that's insanely bottlenecked by, I mean, SATA is hilarious. They even made those or NVMe that CXL is really in between kind of the interface that you would use an NVMe or DRAM uh, DIMMs for. So CXL, he believes once we use that, you can just have a third tier of just Optane that's almost RAM. And he actually, and when I asked him a console question, he's like, the next gen consoles should just have a ton of an Optane-like memory and forego a bunch of other stuff. So I wonder how you see that coming or if you have put any thought into it and I'm just blindsided. Oh, I mean, I'm trying to process a lot of this. I mean, this is, the, the server world's kind of beyond me, but it it's it's fascinating. I've had some chats. With- well, but it almost seems like that's what Sony tried to do with their SSD, to be honest, is try to see if they could get as close to Optane as possible. So I do have an answer for my best answer for this. My best answer mm-hmm. for this is well, look at why we're accelerating PCIe. It isn't for GPUs at this point in time. There's like virtually no difference between PCIe 3 and PCIe 4, and we're bringing PCIe 5 next year. 
right? It's like <laughs> Intel's trying to bring it this year for one platform. Yeah. Well, yeah, we're trying, right? We're trying to bring it next year. It's like we've had one generate. We had like six generation of GPUs on PCIe three or mm. seven. We've had one and a half so far on PCIe four, and we're already doing away with it. And it's because the it's not GPU bandwidth that we're looking through it for. It's it's storage specifically. Yeah. And it's like, when you look at what they did it on the PS5, they put, I think they have 16 lanes. It's either 12 or 16 lanes. For, oh, I don't know off the top of my head, but. I'd have to look at the Cerny slide. Mike Cerny, Mark Cerny mentioned it, but it's like 12 or 16 lanes of PCIe 4. PCIe 4, 12 channel interface. Oh, 12 channel interface. So that's not the number of lanes. That's the controller in the SSD. And I know because I talked to someone who built it. <laughs> yeah, see, fascinating. <laughs> Okay, so it might still be four lanes. It makes sense because they have another bay for it. But they have other pipelines over Infinity Fabric for like coprocessors and stuff. So it is all things considered better than, you know, what you're getting. But I think that like typically what you would end up doing on a, a PC is just leaving the lanes as it is and then keeping keep operating the interface, right? So we have, and that's, so going to PCIe 5 is going to give a big difference for storage. So we could see a huge difference in in theoretical throughput there. So Where it's probably just going to be brute forced, you know, that's how they catch up, you know. And Optane's fascinating, but it, yeah, once again, it's one of these things we've never seen used properly. I, I'd love to see it used properly, personally. So I think this is a more specific question for something we've kind of been dancing around. Alexander writes in and he says, I'm curious what the process of planning for a new platform, like, say, the PS5, Xbox Series X, or even for a given target PC spec, is like when you start to develop a game years ahead of release, for that platform. That's something I think about too, how like some of these games, just as an example, like I think Horizon 2 was started in like 2016, 2017. And so really it started as a PS4 game, but now it's on, like, how do you even target something like b before you even know what it's going to be on? I mean, and he continues, is, is like when you start to develop a game years ahead of the release of that platform, assuming that you are developing directly for that platform and not for the current gen and then porting to next gen, what is that like? Is there a lot of guesswork, hoping, or are the hardware manufacturers able to give you a specific enough spec far enough out that it's not too big of an issue? So I guess, yeah, a lot of like indie devs for PC, this is a lot of what you have to do is just guess, right? Or it's kind of easy to run your games though, right? We, we were with Raw Fury was our publisher and they did have more contact with PlayStation and Xbox to give a little bit of an inkling, but it wasn't mm. a ton. But I was—I have kind of an, an odd answer for that, in that games always get out of hand. So you mm. always build a game, and it's like even with something simple, what you'd think so, like a, a pixel art, 3D uh, hybrid game, like Star Renegades. We did real-time lighting, which made things get out of hand really quickly because we have thousands of objects casting real-time shadows in real time. <laughs> like just the amount of computation ended up being much more. So it's like, despite the fact that we you make a simple decision, sometimes the, it ends up exceeding the technical limits that would have been appropriate for the time. And developers are almost always in that. And then the question mm -hmm. is, do you just optimize it down or reduce the visual quality in some way to, to accommodate the hardware that would have been around the yeah. time that you started it or do you let it get a little bit out of hand and let the future's hardware take care of it right it's like i think halfway between both of those is where yeah. most devs end up falling they they have to let some things to have future hardware take care of where the game just got out of hand and some people are just crazy technical masterminds that handle these things i had a crazy talk with the art director of criterion which seems mm. like they went from going 
they went from working on burnout games to being like the tech leads at EA. So, which kind of sucks because we lose our burnout games, but all of EA gets better tech because of it, right? It's like, you do have some people that are really good at answering mm-hmm. these questions and they would probably, I would love to talk to someone that deals with that directly personally. Cause those are the, well, I think, I think Mark Cerny, you've mentioned him earlier in the podcast is one of those people. I think he liked making games, but then also he's just like really good at knowing which hardware to use when designing things. So that's kind of what he does now for the most part. And they just let him make a game every now and then. So he can, I believe, but like he's the hardware guy now. He goes from studio to studio, right? And he asks them what they want and what they need. And they give him answers on that. And I just have to like, I, I work on the game that I do. It gets out of hand. And then I, it's almost always the hard work of programmers because I'm like the artist jamming assets in a scene. And they're the ones that end up cursing my name, um, you know, because it's like this is the tension that happens. And hopefully Unreal 5 solves some of that tension. It seems like it's set to. But, you know, because we do want to artists just want to make the game that's possible. Right. But there are technical limitations. And oftentimes most I'd say the vast majority of artists don't want to understand and even a lot of programmers. I've worked with a lot of programmers and mm, they don't... My friend's a programmer. He doesn't want to bother with the hardware at all. <laughs> don't even want to think about it on that kind of level. They just want to do their job, write the code the best they can, see how it runs. If there's a memory leak, they'll deal with it. But it's like, you know, they want to go home. Let me ask you this question directly then. So Kent Gain writes in and he says, Hey, Tom and Brian, over the past few years, with Zen flipping everything on its head and Radeon graphics cards once again competing with NVIDIA directly in the high end, what is your take on this as a game developer? Has this new hardware arms race been as influential on the gaming space for you guys as it has been for us, or will it take a long time for this new hardware to be utilized to its full capabilities? So I guess he kind of asked a few questions there. Yeah. I mean, I feel like I've kind of answered some of that, but it's like... You- New features are exciting because uh, they open p- potential possibilities, right? It's like, and usually it's a small subset of games that really use them beautifully the way that that they're designed to be used or used in ways that no one's ever thought of. And I'm looking forward to the ways we haven't thought of using things yet. I'm looking for the deferred rendering moment. I'm looking mm-hmm. for, you know, those aspects of games when we find out you have all of these hardware, they have the geometry engine, but they also have the audio chips. Like audio has mm, been, yeah. been shafted a lot. The Tempest engine, I think it's called on the PS5. Uh, yes. Audio engine's been shafted a lot, but developers are already doing full 3D audio on the Tempest engine and finding other uses for it for acceleration. Yep. They're already like, hey, it's basically like a crazy modified shader with some ASICs in it. We've we've maxed out our audio. We have like double the audio quality we ever could have dreamed of having before. And now we have all this free hardware. So it's like all of those things are fascinating. Having it married in one design is where AMD is starting to come to light. If you look at like, you know, the 5900 HS or the 5800, like these these chips that have GPU and CPU on it and the amount of voltage regulation that's going between it and just how close communication everything is. There's a lot of fascinating things we can theoretically do there. Oh yeah, I can't, I can't, because uh, I've heard that effectively, I've, I've heard a lot of wild comparisons for what that Tempest engine could be used for, to be honest. Like like it could be used just literally almost like a cell processor was used. Uh, I think a lot of people don't know that uh, the kind of how the PS5 APU was built is that it kind of has an extra compute unit that's special purpose, but it's meant for audio, but you, they let you use it for whatever you can make it do, well, you know? And they have two things that aren't straight RDNA. They have the mm-hmm. geometry engine and they have the Tempest engine. The Tempest engine, they say, like Cerny said, they gutted a shader and they did like essentially 
used whatever they needed from a shader, probably all the, the FP performance of it. And then they put some ASICs in there. We don't know what they are. Sony's so quiet on their yeah, presentation. I know. I, I'm fascinated. And then the geometry engine, which is something they co-developed with AMD. People have hinted that it'll come to RDNA 3 or what's next. But I'm... Who's hinted? I've heard people hint. Right. It, it, it might like you. people it you might talk to. People. All right. I just wanted, I, I'm just, yeah, but you see, I'm confirming. Do you mean, do you hear it from me or did you hear it by talking to someone behind the well, scenes? I haven't been into conferences for a while. So most of my, I, I mean, I yeah. would have probably more firsthand whispers of some of this stuff if, you know, COVID hadn't happened. But uh, yeah, this is where I'm trying to immediately pull out more info on that because I do find that type of stuff fascinating where it's still I just hear all these really cryptic things from devs all the time about what's going on with the geometry engine and such in there. And that I think just for the Tempest engine to even work, it has some sort of like per compute, like it has like some special voltage regulation that's probably an RDNA 3 kind of thing. But again, if I say that, this is where the fanboys go and say, they're like, oh, it's not RDNA 3. And it's like, I didn't say it was. Also, none of these are one architecture. They're all custom. Well, QH Freddy writes in and he asks, what do you think are some of the biggest weaknesses many programmers in the gaming space have? I personally think that so many games are brought down by bad planning or management, lack of principal design, and sometimes often an afterthought-based approach to performance and other issues. Well, um, you're right. I like The programmers I work with are awesome. I don't want to make like... I've worked with a lot of great programmers. Um, oftentimes, they're also just forced to make games bad by time or decisions mm -hmm. or not. So it's like, let's say that you need to make a build to get funding approved for something, right? And then you do, but then you don't have time to rebase everything that you would. And then you have to continue building on something you should have scrapped and rebuilt. And that happens all the time in game development. Like there's tons of times that game developers wish that they had it like develop programmers that are great programmers wish they had time to stop and they don't get a chance to right and that mm -hmm. happens more the lower the budget is on games so that's that's something to keep in mind whenever budget gets strapped that's where that usually comes into play if developers have more like more certainty but that's also where a lot of beauty happens in games which is a weird thing it's like those stresses sometimes make some of the best games but they often they can cause a lot of technical issues um the other aspect of that, okay, so it's like given what we've talked about with the API overhead test, right? Mm -hmm. Where DirectX 11 is clearly like 20 times worse at draw calls. Yeah, that's just one part of the pipeline, but it's a significant part of the pipeline. Devs talk about draw calls all the time. Um, yeah, it's a significant part of the pipeline. So you would think Vulkan and DirectX 12 would be a straight win, but they're not a straight win because they expose so much of the graphics pipeline that coding issues cause more of an impact than they do in DirectX 11. So despite the fact that theoretically you have access to a significantly smaller window in your pipeline, you could making, you're making games so much faster at one component, they slow down with the code in enough places because there's the more of the pipeline, that the more of the, the metal that's exposed, the more risk there is in causing issues in your own game development. Oh, yeah. So this is kind of one of these weird things. And some of that is first principles. Some of that is, uh, you know, reacting to time pressures or stress or being forced to build a game improperly due to uh, lots of pressures. It can be that you need to get some feature in visually to show, show off, despite the fact that that part isn't ready yet. And then you always end up with like a broken part of your game that lags it down. 
like that happens. All of these things can happen in game development. And it's, it's oftentimes I would say like having worked with a lot of amazing programmers, I wouldn't say it's necessarily their fault off. It's a lot of times it's the fault of setting. Sometimes it might be with some programmers at some places. I, I hope I'm not like cutting off a train of thought here, but I, I, I kind of want to, because I, I always want to ask the devil's advocate argument, how much of, because and, and this is always what we hear, time constraints are what seem to do it and not planning ahead or then thinking you'd have more time and then you go back and you, but I know it's nuanced, but I just, how much of that is like the planning ahead of time, do you think, when things go wrong? Like how much of the onus is on the planning ahead of time by the dev and how much is, is the publisher just a big meanie? I mean, that. I think it's an interesting question, even if I didn't answer, ask it right. No, no, you asked it just fine. It's a fascinating question. And it's one that, you know, okay. So I came away from GDC talking to a lot of devs with more respect with EA and Ubisoft than I went with. And it's because I talked to the art director of Riot Games. Mm. And at that point in time, Riot Games had League of Legends and it was this crazy success. And the way the art director was communicating it to me was that, any time that they tried to put any pressures, because I was making like $6 billion a year or something crazy like that, <laughs> the team came on it like it was tyranny, right? Like it was tyrannical every time. Because game developers, game development's a lot more psychology than you might think, especially with bigger teams. Oh, yeah. So, and it's, it's also like you get weird questions with this where it's like, okay, I remember we got a lot of flack because our Switch port, which was handled outside of house to some extent, and you know you end up with with issues with it we got got people flagging us for putting like a new content update with some new characters and stuff because the switch port wasn't fixed and it's like Mm -hmm. from a developer's perspective that's different people it's like (laughs) that's me drawing in a room right making extra content and then jamming it in tools that already exist right so it's like and then, you know, Peter implementing it. So like someone else that I'm working with implementing it. And that isn't, the, the developers are already, they're still going crazy trying to solve this switch problem or whatnot, but you're putting out extra content in the meantime. So some of that is is perception, right? It's like, uh, and that these these are these studios are monoliths. Like it's, it's kind of amazing that Ubisoft and EA can motivate their company to push out a game every year, even if maybe they shouldn't sometimes, right? It's, I, I respect that in a way because I see how well, hard it and was. At, right, and at the expense for, some of the people listening hating me or you for saying this. I feel like, I mean, I don't know. Some games take 10 years to come out and then they're terrible. Like, I don't know, it wasn't Duke Nukem one of them. It's like, sometimes I feel like, can we not, you know, maybe there is something to be commended in the publisher saying, we gave you five years. It's coming out, you know? Well, there's the, like, sometimes that's a mistake. Sometimes it's not, you know? Yeah, well, there's the internal on that too, right? Those are games where the develop the the staff is completely lost hope on it, and it's being dragged along for some reason. And there's other ones that because you don't know. Like to be honest, the hardest mm-hmm. thing is you have no idea when you're working on a game. You're pouring into it, and it's like, I I remember because Star Renegades was my first game where I did like all the art direction, all the pixel art, and all everything for. It. And when I put it out, it wasn't until I went to conferences that I felt okay about it. Like I felt super self-conscious. I had no idea how people were going to react. I didn't know what, and I'm thankful it was as positive as this. When we went to shows, Mm -hmm. people were so positive towards it. And I was like, oh, thank goodness. I can relax because I was so anxious. And some part was like, I can relax. And the other part was like, which parts did they like the most? And then I get really intense about those, trying to make more scenes like that. And that helps me grow a lot as an artist and as someone like that. But it's like, 
you know, all of these devs, they're just people. They're people working on things. Some of them are flawed. Some of them are confused. And sometimes they really believe in it and some, and it's, they shouldn't. And sometimes they really believe in it and they should, right? And mm-hmm. sometimes they don't believe in it and they should. And, you know, like all of this happens. And in a studio, all of it can happen, be happening simultaneously. Yeah. None of these people, it's kind of a weird thing. It's like the more successful you get, and you could probably speak this as much as anyone else. It's like, I think there's a perception that it shouldn't decrease anxiety, but in some ways it increases it, <laughs> right? It's like, no. they're like, oh, you do well, right? It's like, do I do well? It's like, I'm just doing my best. I've done one thing that's successful, let's say, or two things that are successful, but I'm just, you know, it's like, you're you're so much more public and you're exposed. It's like, as an artist, just like, I feel like there's this artist syndrome where someone looks at your sketchbook, right? And if someone takes your mm-hmm. sketchbook, you're like split up. Half of you is away around the corner depend, pretending to be nonchalant and the other half of you is floating over top being like oh my gosh i'm so exposed they could read so much into me by looking through these pages if mm. they wanted to and games are kind of like that for people who develop them right it's like it's their work exposed so they're they have to you have to step away from it at a certain point but you you feel like all these people are looking at you and it's that can be really nerve-wracking, right? It's like Oh yeah. I, I dealt with a lot of those types of thoughts about six months ago. <laughs> I think now I'm over it, but that is a thing, you know, where everything you just said, I certainly yes, I understand. <laughs> All right. Well, we've danced around I, I want to bring this one up just because it was a recent announcement. Carbon Cry writes in, what do you make of the new Switch OLED being the exact same except for a screen? Is the memory capacity a real barrier to porting games? And how much would and how much would it have made the Switch more workable for devs in most situations if they increased the amount of memory? And I know you watched a video I also watched, so perfect. It is, yeah. That was really good. People should watch that video if they get the chance. I'll put it in the description. I agree. But, it's, but go on. Uh, yeah, it's... Um, I think... I was very disappointed by that announcement personally as <laughs> and this is it's kind of engine dependent some engines are run a lot worse in like for instance I have to work a lot in unity and unity does not run well on switch and it's it's not um, reflective of the performance that's theoretically there right I would say and Unreal is a bit better on Switch, as in they at least have the means to turn down settings to get to the point where you can get performance pretty good. Would both of them kill for more RAM? Yes. If you were making a for for developers that are really good at making their own engine and their own tools, they might be more able to work within limitations, but still frustrated by them. But the developers that are working on more of the mainstream engines would absolutely love a more powerful Switch. Love, oh, yeah. but. The thing is, is that you you might end up with edge case scenarios where people focus too much on it, and then you get really, really bad original Switch ports, like we see with kind of original Xbox One ports at some point in time. Well, I mean, yeah, there's so much I could say about the Switch. I, I, a thing that I heard is that, because it's kind of bizarre, they went with Maxwell for the original Switch when Pascal was already out. I mean, heck, the PS4 Pro used parts of Vega before Vega launched. Why did Nintendo choose Maxwell? And I actually heard that it, they wanted to save $10 on that APU, and I'm just like, what? <laughs> like, it... you got to keep in mind Nintendo's predicament with the Switch. I, they came I, on the I don't agree, the though. U, right? So they just came off of losing more money than they lost in a long time on a console and people telling them over and over again to get out of console development. And they Mm, turn around and released 
the one of the more successful consoles of all time. I mean, it's probably going to end up being one of the most successful. I mean, it's still selling gangbusters. It's insane what they did with 256 shaders. Absolutely insane what they did with that. Mind you, a lot of it, because it does have half precision floats, which is an interesting question, because it's like, if you look at the Mario Galaxy port, the Mario 3D All-Stars port to mm-hmm. the Switch, all of the 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 alpha the blending of gradients is all half you can tell it looks worse in some ways on the gradients it's higher resolution but the gradients look worse than they did on the the wii for mario galaxy and it's because they're using half floats for for all of it get the performance but you don't think ten dollars they should have put in the ten i'm disappointed by this and i think it should have six gigs of ram too i I just they could have spent fifteen dollars total and probably doubled its performance and then it would have easily caught up i kept up i believe with the next gen consoles i'm a display junkie so like oled is still really interesting for me i'll take that for the lack of motion blur like most days but it does disappoint me that they should put more hardware in i mean it it's it would be hard for devs to target a third skew but if you think about it, even if they just made the portable mode performance, they could have with it. Mm, if, yeah. if they would have went to like, let's say they went to 7nm or have, they could have gone to like Samsung's 8nm and released that same chip. And there's no reason that they, they could have been able to have the this portable mode at the docked performance. Of the original, yeah. The docked profile in the portable mode and not even bothered with a third profile and then at least portable players are happy but they didn't even do that right it's like and it's not, yeah it's not for a lack of they've made a fortune off of the switch so i don't know well, well that's what i find kind of mind-boggling as well um if, when i look at the switch they see when did the first one come out okay 2017 so we're looking at something that's over four years old what i find so bizarre is it's like by basically launching the same SKU again for more money, it's almost like they're saying, well, we intend to keep this level of hardware for the next four years or at least next three. But I'm wondering if that's not it. I'm wondering if they're just, to how I would put it, is milking it one more time before they do actually launch a new gen in two years. And this is just what they want to do because they don't want to split up the base. They might have come across a situation. Let's say they did use like the next gen Tegra or whatever. Right. There's a Volta one they could have used that would have been significantly better. And let's say it had tensor cores and that they worked because yep. Nintendo has the potential more than other devs do to work um let's say DLSS into their their actual tools mm-hmm. in a way. And they might have found that they're getting so much better performance out of it to target it as a Switch 2. And they might be trying to go because they they're kind of already outside of the typical gaming market. And if anyone could pull off Apple-like iterations, it's probably Nintendo, where you do the Switch, and then you do the Switch 2, and then you do the Switch 3, and then you phase out the Switch 1, and you just do these hardware things. And they probably they might have found that they did a chip like that, and it was too big of a jump for them, let's say, and it was worthy of... Um, a next generation switch, let's say. Almost like, because I know there's like different Tegras, or uh, this one might actually be called Xavier, if I remember right, but that there's like a Volta basically equivalent to what they have now with a much stronger ARM processor. You're saying maybe they tried that and they're like, yeah, but that's so much stronger. Maybe we just wait for the Ampere or whatever comes after Ampere one and just have one big switch over in a couple of years yeah, or something. They have a better opportunity to force devs to. 
uh, to to not try to get devs to push another SKU right now, to not alienate early Switch mm. adopters or people who just bought a first-generation Switch now, right? They have an opportunity, because that's the issue with the downside with the, the new consoles. Now, I have kind of like a, a weird segue off of here, and this is like purely... Well, before you do that, let me ask this then, and maybe this is connected to what you're going to say, is it sounds like though we both agree that this Switch OLED, they're probably still launching a full new generation in a couple of years, and this is just their last one. Yeah, I think they have to do two years, though, because if they did one year now, people would be really upset. I think, yeah, I think too. Uh, 350 though, for, I don't know, I think the price is absurd, personally, but people are still buying them, so. But go on, what were you going to say? Oh, this is like a purely hypothetical question, but do you think that, this is my own crazy thoughts, I'm sorry, okay. but with keeping PS4 support, do you think you could do... If they did, let's say, a 7 or a 6 NM PS4 chip, they could do it portable. That they could have it... Like, let's say they did that chip, and then Sony did that chip, and they could drop the clocks, like the voltage curve, so far down on it. And that you would have full base PS4 compatibility on essentially a portable PlayStation. And then you don't have to worry about selling people PS Vita games you just give them access to all of their digital PS4 library and portable. This is this is my hypothetical. I'm like, why are they keeping stringing on the PS4? And I'm like, it makes more sense to string along the PS4 if you're hoping to use that going forward than it does if you're trying to keep the old install base. I'm trying. So what I'm trying to do is because I don't, you know, keep track of all of it. Um, pull up. But this doesn't seem to be the page that I want. Like, I want to know, like, what iteration of, like, nanometer they're on. Because I know, I think it's still just 16 nanometer they're using, to my memory. Did it launch at 28? Uh, I thought that the PS4 yeah. bit it, launched at 28. It did, and they die-shrunk it to 16. So, but that's the important question. So, PS4 Slim power usage, because I believe that is the 16 nanometer model. So, we're looking at 55 to 110 watts. And the original was 90 to 50. That sounds about right. I just call it using, like... I don't know. Let's just put it, let's just say it's using like 80 watts or something. So if you were to then go from 16 to 7, this is theoretical. It's not going to be perfect. I mean, I don't know. And all they went for is power usage. You almost get to 40. And then if you went to 5 nanometer, yeah, I think you could do like a 25 watt or less PS4 on 5 nanometer. That's just a I do. thought that crossed my mind. Unless they have an API to do a hybrid with ARM, let's say, that just does the transition in real time. I think that's kind of like... Well, and, and, and I want to be clear, we're talking about if we literally die shrink this inefficient old PS4 architecture, like, because if we were to talk about, like, the APUs out now, it's a very easy answer, you know, well, Renoir, Cezanne, already are as powerful as a PS4. They're 15 watts. You might even just be able to, I don't know, that's just, that's a thought that just crossed my mind of why they're keeping PS4 support along. I mean, Microsoft well, created this so differently by treating their ecosystem like an API. You might have a I don't, more loading. I, I don't think that they're doing this, though, to uh, make a PS4 die shrink portable. I think they're probably doing this because they want the money and they're not listening to all of the stuff they said they needed the next gen stuff for, which is, I think, a little ridiculous. But if they were to make a portable, I think they should just wait and do it from the ground up. Frankly, I think what they would want to do is an 18 compute unit. RDNA 2 or RDNA 3 thing, like a half PS5, but then it's just like 
almost compatible in every way in the same CPU, but you cut the compute units in half and it's just like literally any game running on the PS5, we're just going to run it half the resolution or whatever the equivalent would be to that level of performance. I'm have to wait for 5NM for that. Especially, if, yes. that'd be really good if you had something like FSR or something in it that already has resolution scaling built in. So you can right. plug it in and then turn that feature on and have your, your resolution scaling happening without developers even having to think about it. Well, and so many of these games are built for 60 frames now, right? That they could literally just turn off resolution mode in half of the games. And like, there it is. You know, that's just what you get to, you know, you run this on. Um, but, you know, that... I, I will say, though, I don't know that they're going to do that. I don't think Sony likes portables, but... Um, you, they would like it if it was more successful. <laughs> I think this is you know, if they wanted it to be successful, they shouldn't have tried to strangle the PlayStation Vita the second it came out, in my opinion. But <laughs> I'm kind of interested with the direction some of this is, though, because it's like they obviously put serious engineering efforts into the Tempest engine and into the geometry processor and, like, and to the memory controlling ASIC and the PS5. So to make their games multi-platform would be like, let's say it's the CEO making that decision without understanding all of the architecture they put in. Which sounds like something he would do with this current CEO, by the way. <laughs> so it's like, then he's not realizing what he's doing to the future mm -hmm. games by, you know, by making that decision. Because it seems like it makes sense, but there's it's a lot a good of point. where it doesn't make sense. He might not even know what he's doing by like, putting these games on PS4. And I would say the same thing with kind of this cross-gen thing for the Xbox, where it's like, we're going to have Halo Infinite on the original Xbox One. And it's like, well, okay, that's That's going to crazy hold back the Series X. But um, let me... Okay, so I think we've been going a very long time. I do want to ask this question here. You touched on it. Michael Unterhuber writes in and says, Hi, I don't know if your studio already looked into AMD FSR, but for me, the best thing about it is that it's working with dynamic resolution. I really like the super stable 60 frames per second on my PS5, for example, and dynamic res is just necessary to achieve this. The thought of dynamic resolution combined with FSR makes me really excited. I guess he doesn't ask a question, but I do want to ask what you think about FSR and it being implemented into the consoles. I say consoles possibly, though, because... Sony hasn't even added adaptive sync to the PS5 yet, and I'm pretty sure it's going to come to Xbox in some games this year. Yeah, I, I mean, the good thing about both of those is like one is trying to compensate for the other, and the other is necessary because games are unpredictable to some extent. Dynamic res and FSR, you're saying both of those. Well, so dynamic res, the advantage of it is that games are unpredictable to some extent, but that means that your frame rate drops. So it's like, if you suddenly have like four giant things run onto the scene and mm -hmm. they all spew explosions, let's say, and you're, you're suddenly railing on your GPUs, you know, you have all of these alpha transparencies, which cause all of these blending issues. And, and then, you know, dynamic res, res is a beautiful thing in those times because now you're not stuttering like crazy but fsr in theory in the high-end settings you know will compensate for some of that so i think it's these kind of technologies are uh, are necessary for being able to make games more freely so if you want to make mm -hmm. games where you especially um like roguelikes or games that are emergent any type of emergent gameplay where you might have lots of things just suddenly kind of happen on the screen at once right? Like, and be uncontrollable where it's like one game, you could have it be really lightweight and the next game could theoretically make your PC chug, right? That it does a great job compensating for that. Now we would prefer to be able to do that without having to worry about image quality at the same time. Usually it's just a couple of frames that, you know, or if, you know, 10 or 15 frames, it might be a, a small enough section that you notice the degradation, but usually you can't. 
but yeah, it's, it's just a great way to even out the output. And I mean, hopefully they stack more and more into FSR as time goes on so that, you know, it's, it's kind of one of these weird things because there's no temporal aspect of it right now. And that could theoretically make the visual quality a lot better, but at the cost of holding frames, right? So now it's leaving it up to devs not to hold frames or, or to look at frames or having past frame data to implement things on. So it's like you either use a, a, a latency, and this is what people complain about about DLSS to some extent is mm-hmm. even when it looks... Which I, I'm curious what you think about DLSS and its future as well. If you want to touch on it. Yeah. But continue with what you're saying. I'm not, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's um, that latency becomes the question, right? Because it's a processing happening after a frame is done, which is making your frame come later, even if it it doesn't take that much time itself, right? It's like, when do you hold frames or when not? And AMD is currently choosing to put it in the hands of game developers when they choose to hold frames that they can put FSR in and they're not required to have a temporal solution. They're not required to have any of that. And there's adv- there's advantages to that in regards to performance and latency, and there's disadvantages when it comes to image quality. So we have, I don't know, it's a dilemma. I hope that we find some super lightweight AI sampling to go into that or something to more reconstruct the image, either using data from previous frames, maybe only one frame instead of a couple or something like that, where it doesn't implement, implement uh, sorry, affect latency too much and keeps the quality up. But I definitely think that these kind of technologies are the future, personally. I mean, did FSR impress you, though? Because I've seen some pretty polarizing opinions on it. it. It's better than I expected it to be. It's it's not turning everything into weird oil painting smears like DLSS 1.0 did, which just had... <laughs> I, I could see how, like, engineers having developed the first DLSS would be like, it's filling the pixels. This is amazing. Right. And then artists mm-hmm. looking at it being like, what is it doing? Like, there's something really weird here. And it's like, even, you know, I was playing around with DLSS uh, on cyberpunk and it was still doing really weird things and blinds and stuff. It's like you walk in the game will 90% of the time look really good. And then you walk to one area and you're like that. I feel really weird about this area. Like, well, oh, sorry. My, you were asking me what my thoughts were on the overall quality. So ultra performance and uh, was it ultra, the top two presets seem to look pretty good. Mm-hmm. And they're, especially for going from 1440p to 4K, that seems to be the best use of it right now, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. And this is kind of the question. I remember I had this problem when I had the 5700 XT and I was trying to play um, Dark Souls 3 on my PC. And it was like mm-hmm. 90% of the time you had a locked 60. And then every once in a while, it was yeah. just enough to cause a bunch of duplicate frames and make it feel inconsistent. And if I had something like FSR plus um, dynamic resolution there, I wouldn't have cared. I would have loved that. That would have been perfect. Not having to lower my settings for the edge case for that 10% of the time where I'm unhappy. And then I'm tempted to lower everything from where I'm happy with it. Yeah. Just to compensate for those. Just for that one area. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let me ask this. Uh, since you have, you seem to have put a lot of thought in research into this i mean a lot a common question i keep getting asked is is nvidia just going to add fsr to dlss does that question make sense to you is that a thing oh yeah well i think this right now nvidia's dlss technology is probably superior in a lot of ways visual quality wise but they will have to keep making everything they have have tensor cores in it to implement Mm -hmm. properly yeah, that was one of my early videos, like why NVIDIA is married to tensor cores for the next few generations. Yeah. Yeah, and they will be unless their their server side gets 
taken over by some kind of ASIC that outperforms them in a way they can't anticipate. Mm-hmm. Whether that's associated with AMD or with someone else, because that that space is they're much more willing to jump over to something completely new if or Intel or Intel if if they have an AI chip that accelerates things crazily past GPUs. Because I mean, Jim Keller was saying this, but I mean, Ponte Vecchio. Yeah, GPUs are just like <laughs> giant arrays of shaders trying to do things they weren't necessarily set mm-hmm. out for. So it's like, but they do a really good. So, but at some point in time, they might have something that's built specifically for their workloads, which is exactly why GPUs became useless in mining and certain things. It's like as soon as they had an ASIC that did that algorithm in a more, a better, efficient way, then there wasn't any point for those coins. So it's like, I do worry about NVIDIA taking that because it's open, right? Like FSR is open. They could take it, they could plug it in. Um, I forgot that's what we were talking I about, know, actually. I'm, I'm all over the place. What is there anything we didn't cover that you wanted to get to? We jumped all over the place, but when I look over this script here, I think we actually got to pretty much all of it, just in a different, quite different order than was outlined. Yeah, I think I think we got there in a different order. I think I mean, there's there's always more things. I could talk more like specific stories or things like that, meeting odd characters at games conferences or things, but. You know, it's. I think we cover most of the bases. It'd be more if you had something. Sp- I mean, I would say, look, you know, you're invited to come on again. You know, and there are guests that I have on that I really enjoy talking to. Though I can't really think of any guests that I hated talking to, to be honest, or they probably wouldn't have been invited on. Um, but you're definitely invited to come on again if we get a buffer for more things to develop, and then because I, I do, I do really enjoy bringing in real, like input from someone who's worked on games, worked on hardware, talks about hardware with real people programming for it. I I think the amount of stories you could bring in could just create an infinite amount of podcasts that I think are far more useful than, I. you know, it's a different type of conversation that I feel adds to, you know, the stuff we usually talk about on here. Yeah. And this is what I've always appreciated about your channel is like these opportunities for nooks of like having a weird server expert come on and not, not that they're weird, but just that it's unusual. Well, they usually are, but I'm weird. So what do you, no, whatever. Well, it's more that I mean more weird in the unusual that one came on and talked sense, right? It's like, and I'm usually, I guess I'm unusual in that I'm, I'm really sifting for these conversations in tech. That, you know, the typical GPU reviews don't do it for me anymore. I love, you know, I love those odd bits of content with David Cantor when Der Bauer is talking about, Mm -hmm. you know, weird stuff or when, you know, you have an absurd conversation with somebody or Wendell goes deep on servers on level one tech, right? It's like that kind of stuff is fascinating to me. And some of it's way beyond my depth. I just wanted to, I guess I was hoping for an opportunity to talk about the things that I feel like I don't get talked about enough. And I think are also very fascinating. And what I've found that people really respond to me when they meet me, like even NVIDIA engineers, when I met them at GDC, when they took me out for drinks, it was like, (laughs) it's, you know, it was a good time, but it's like, and they thought that I was, because when I said that I had issues with them, they thought it would be like some surface thing they could solve. And they were like, oh, you actually have real problems. This is different than what I was anticipating. <laughs> but it's like, I don't know. I love tech. This is all fascinating. And I just love when we're expanding, we're talking more about how this stuff works or what's fascinating about the future. Yeah, even if doing. maybe I get something wrong and I do get stuff wrong all the time, I just, I find the conversation itself the most exciting part. That's why anytime I'm, 
I put out a leak video, I at least usually half of it's just trying to look at stuff that wasn't the actual info. Because I think the implications of any new set of information is really the most fun thing is talking about the implications. Yeah, which is like, which is why I, I've got to make sure that uh, everyone is aware that I am an artist primarily, right? And it's like, <laughs> I, I'm fascinated with this stuff. I probably have some stuff wrong. I'd love to talk to engineers about these kinds. Of, if there's an engineer who wants to reach out to me about some of this stuff, I would love to talk to you, right? It's like... Well, and we have corrections and omissions in the Moore's Law is Dead Discord. So people, if they have problems, submit them and we'll try to get them you know, fixed. But thank you so much for letting me talk. Like, I really appreciate it. <laughs> Anything do you want to plug? I mean... I mean, you can always follow me on Twitter. I've been debating for years whether I should start a YouTube channel on something, but I always like, so I, I did pop. You sound far more knowledgeable than a lot of people with YouTube channels. So I would encourage you to do it. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's just, and, and who are you on Twitter though? Just my name, so, Ryan Heemskirk at Twitter. Brian, it's where you, okay. if you search, I have, oddly enough, I have the most power, popular Metroid Dread gif right now that I did for fun for metroid fans out there you might get a kick out of it um, yeah and i'll have a link to you in the description so yeah that'll be covered um i did start a youtube channel it's linked on the twitter but i literally oh. have one video i did a pixel artist reacts i think that in the future i'd love to do three things because i wanted to cover art games and tech and i want to talk about how those three marry each other because they're more married and every time i hear them talked about they're so segregated and that that's kind of so I don't know. I, I think that like what I would love to do is have more conversations like this, but with, you know, developers or with programmers, sorry, developers or artists or um, anything like this is a fascinating world and there's so much information in it. So that's kind of, if I was to, that, that's plugging a potential future, but not a current anything, right? It's like, I have no presence on YouTube. I have presence on Twitter more than anything. No, I mean, I, I couldn't agree more with anything uh, the, you said I, I that's why I'm a broken silicon is because I just want the conversations you know um and uh all right well I've got to go I appreciate you giving me so much of your time especially because we started late I did not expect that um but yeah yeah thanks for coming on everyone there will be links in the description where you can follow Brian and uh thanks for listening everybody this podcast was brought to you by the YouTube channel and website Moore's Law is Dead Moore's Law is Dead and Broken Silicon are trademarks of their creator, Tom. That guy is me, and I am indeed the creator, editor, writer, and showrunner of Moore's Law is Dead podcasts, videos, articles, and other media. However, I don't do this alone. Moore's Law is Dead is a team with Broken Silicon co-hosted by my brother, Dan, audio editing by Gerard Cortez, and special assistance by Carbon Cry. Find all of our information, including the information of sponsors you can support, at www.moreslawsdead.com. If you would like to send fan mail or hardware to us, please mail parcels to Moore's Laws Dead at P.O. Box 60632 in Nashville, Tennessee, zip code 37206. And speaking of fans, patrons are what makes Moore's Laws Dead content possible. The aging business model of spamming ads all over the content is dying. The future of media will be built on fans paying for the content they actually want to exist. And so if you have the extra money, but only if you do, 
please consider supporting us. For just $2 a month, you get access to the exclusive podcast Die Shrink, voting on subjects of future podcast episodes, the ability to have your questions read aloud on Broken Silicon, Die Shrink, and Loose Ends, and of course, access to the Moore's Laws Dead Discord, full of like-minded people who would love to meet you and talk to you about computer hardware. I am one of them. Additionally, higher tiers get access to ad-free episodes of Broken Silicon, the entire back catalog of Flyover State's podcasts and other projects, Moore's Laws that is done, and thanks in the credits of videos and other perks as well. And hey, if you can't afford to support us, please do share Moore's Laws Dead videos and podcasts with friends and family on social media, Reddit, and forums. And give Broken Silicon a five-star review on Apple Podcast or your preferred podcast app. All of this really does help so much. And if you'd like to advertise on the podcast, hire Tom for consulting, or are a person of interest who would like to be a guest, please reach out to the email address mlhbdead at gmail.com. But as I said, this podcast would not be possible without its patrons supporting it, and so now it is time to give a personal thanks to the greatest of the fans. The following supporters are at the 10 gigahertz or higher producer levels. Brad Medlin, Telos, UK, Benny Berlin, Justin Yacht, Thomas Rupp, I love you, Lynn and Jim, Ivan K, Tom Bailey, Muhammad Alkwari, Frederick Cloud, James Crasset, Justin Parrish, Zachary Martin, Terrence Heron, Drita Fold, Phil S, Courtney Elliott, The Ninth Dude, Greg Renegar, Josh Law, JBG, Travis Gooding, Mechanical Philosopher, Lebo King Kilo, Fatboy Deeseroof, Daniel Hyde, A Guy in PA81, Nathan Mose, Cole Attic, Matt Salem, Aaron Close, Juan Garcia, Sean Vollmer, My Name is Nobody, Judson N, Alethros, Jensen Wang, Hey There's a Kitty, Greg T. Wanchik, Ivan 214, John Jameson, Benjamin Cannon, Matthew Lane, Mark Raidmaker, Jan Rauner, Chris Licata, Michael McGee, Ali Robertson, Eric Jackson, Jonathan, Patrick Groh, Evan Dingle, Dominique Cox, Stefan, Original Ross, Tick Dickler, Joaquin Hagen, Total Silo, Sol Connor, Michael Casa, Andrew S. Blake, Aaron Keith, Gregory S. Acker, Endless Loggins, Tom San Filippo, Justice Brennan, Zoot Suit Taylor, Trevor Powers, Stu Elenia Nanyan, Daniel Nishball, Franco Frederick, Dan Galanowski, Alex Carastillo, Dark Rain 2049, Leighton Perry, Joseph Caraman, Carlos Vallis, Carnival Bear, Donovan Russell, Zebra Z Birds, Licky, Martin Borshegi, David Cowden, Ricky Tan, Hulam, Patrick J.S., Justin Staples, Freddie Canoes Jr., Stephen Coates, Kiwi Phil, DeHuhu, Sarah Light, Anthony Garefa, Matthew Griffin, Eddie Del Castillo. Joseph Loria, Luis Correa, Deke, Jeezy Raman, Raul Ebeneni, Tim Robbins, Jake Dude 23, Brian Riggleman, Justin Gower, Caillou Markelli, Dave McCoy, Valko Malev, Gabe Lagner, Ronnie Morton Svensson, Michael Deaton, Thomas Summers, Maurice Courtois, Wesley Sager, Scott Ruff Schneider, My Sharona, Y Truey, Roman William W. Draper, Air Rats, Wakir Khan, Andrew Shang, Stefan Hart, Christopher A. Butler, Greg, Peter Moore, SS, Justin Thomas, Sam Miller, Sammy Malas, Kevin Chen, Shakir, Nick Rakin, Holden Mobley, Matthew Lazier, R. Pete Sharma, Meat and Pork, Jimmy NG, Mads Beachhorn, Benjamin Oshley Z. Jits, Shield TV Couteau, Dame P, John Wasink, Sam Venzel, Mark Mitchell, Brucha, Jeremy So, James Anderson, Jesse Javskowiak, Ian Clifford, Tyler Lindley, MJB1, and of course, thank you to Sahara for the music. <laughs>